Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. And a very good morning to you. This is Mick Mulcahy. The price is right. No, it's not right. It's fright uh, in big red letters uh, on the front page of the Mirror today. Shoppers will spend €453 Euros more on food this year. Uh, I saw uh, an incredible uh, €500 Euro a week uh, food prediction within the next six months in uh, one of yesterday's online papers. Uh, I hope that doesn't uh, come to pass. But soaring prices will see Irish households spend an average of €453 Euros more on their groceries over the course of this year. New research has shown the sharpest increases are in everyday essentials such as butter, eggs, bread and flour. Uh, retail analyst Kantar had found the company's Emer Healy warned food and drink prices are on a steady upwards trajectory. Supermarket weep, consumers shopping less amid inflation and people are ditching popular brands in favour of own brand alternatives as groceries are to cost an average of €453 Euros more this year. Kantar found that two-thirds of people say they will now go for a supermarket's own brand alternative over the more expensive, popular brand of the same staple or the same product. Echo front page, uh, this is heavily covered in most of the morning papers today. Jailed for harassment, online posts caused enormous stress. Um, many people need an online presence and must be allowed to do so without harassment and lies being told about them via the internet. Uh, on the internet, you're publishing to the world, you do it wrong, and uh, you could fall foul of the authorities. And the sentencing judge in this case declared uh, where a Cork woman would be jailed for two years. Sonia Egan carried out a campaign of harassment for approximately one year against former Sinn Féin TD Jonathan O'Brien and a woman working in the community in Cork, which had a devastating effect on both victims. The judge said that one of the victims, Laura O'Connell, had to have an online presence in order to set up a business and that Mr O'Brien had an online presence as part of his work as a politician. Judge Helen Boyle said it's important that people do that without harassment, lies or intimidation. And we're hoping to speak to Barry Roach on that topic, so I'll leave it there for now and continue with the rest of the morning papers. Five-year-old Adam Clark crossed the finish line of his six-kilometre char- charity mini-marathon yesterday, along with his junior infant classmates, ra- raising over €11,000 for Enable Ireland in the process. Uh, and well done uh, to all concerned. Big smiles and a big, big happy story amidst all of the doom and gloom about uh, recession and inflation. Adam was born with cerebral palsy and attends Enable Ireland services in Cork and despite having surgery last November Adam and his family were determined to complete the six kilometres and raise funds for Enable Ireland's children's service in Curraheen. Uh, completing the walk was a big occasion for Adam and his mother uh, as his mother Therese explained Adam is an adorably witty five-year-old boy who was born with cerebral palsy she said. He's had triplegic cerebral palsy, where it affects three of his limbs, both of his legs and his upper right side. And Adam gets about aided with his walker and also has Ted. Ted is his power wheelchair. So with the aid of the walker, Adam reached his goal of walking the six kilometers yesterday, surrounded by family and friends, and was joined for the last quarter of a kilometer by his 20 junior infant classmates at Newcestown National School. Well done to you, Adam. Hats off to you, young man. Average house prices in Cork are 20k more than prices nationally. Tony O'Keefe reporting in the Echo that the average price of a house in Cork is almost 20,000 more 
than the average price of a house nationally. A new report has found. Have you checked out the highest prices in Donegal? Uh, you'd buy two houses in Donegal for the cost of one here, and I'm talking two houses of the similar uh, standard and stature. Uh, anyway, that's an aside. According to the latest DAF.ie report, the average price of a house in Cork is €331,000 against a national average of 312, a difference of €19,000. The average price of a house in Cork increased in the past year from 303 to 331, a hike of €28,000. And Cork North Central Socialist TD McBarry noted that the average price of a house in Cork increased last year by more than the average wage of a young worker. Okay, and uh, we have Barry Roach on the line, so I will come back to the morning papers uh, after we... uh Get him on because I know he is under some time pressure. Barry Roach, good morning. Good morning, Mick. How are you doing? Very good. Irish Times Southern correspondent. Now, uh, we've just detailed in the papers a 42-year-old woman has been jailed for two years for subjecting a Sinn Féin TD and a businesswoman to separate campaigns of harassment in person and on social media, including a false claim they bullied her to the point she miscarried and contemplated suicide. Very serious stuff. Yes, uh, make an extraordinary case, really. A woman called Sonia Egan, uh, living at the lawn, Liz Carrie and Liz Killeen's, and she pleaded guilty last month to two counts of harassing, firstly harassing Cork North Centre's in Fane TD, Jonathan O'Brien, as he was then, former TD now, and a businesswoman, Laura O'Connell, and they're uh, roughly the dates were between 2018 and 2019, and they're contrary to Section 10 of the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act 1997. Uh, we heard last month at the hearing uh, she pleaded guilty just before she was due to go on trial, and we heard from uh, the, the investigating officer, Sergeant John Sheehy, how Egan had contacted Mr O'Brien to about what she claimed was a conspiracy to cover up sex abuse she alleged she had suffered as a child and although he was dubious about her claims he told her the procedure involved in making a protected disclosure uh, she became a member of Sinn Féin and uh, then he, he said that he'd offered her moral support uh, she was overwhelmed by the abuse that she had suffered but she began sending him suggestive messages that made him feel uneasy and she told him then that she had feelings for him that went beyond friendship she started sending him emails and text messages including some from fake accounts and I suppose notably one that she purported or one that purported to be from the then leader of the Labour, British Labour Party Jeremy Corbyn in which he revealed that she, he, she was his daughter another one from a woman in Belfast called Mary McKiernan again a false account uh, and she claimed in that that Egan was the niece of Jerry Conlon, one of the uh, convicted uh, men wrongly convicted for the Guildford bombing in '74 in Britain. She also then began sending emails to other members of Sinn Fein, alleging that Jonathan O'Brien was bullying her and that he betrayed her confidence. And she posted on Facebook uh, a false allegation that by bullying her, he had caused her to lose the baby she was expecting, uh, and that she had driven to the point of suicide. We also heard uh, from Sergeant Shee about the other victim in the case then. Well, sorry, I should just say in that, that Gardy, Jonathan O'Brien told Gardy that he received over a thousand emails from Egan, and some days he received over... A hundred texts a day? hundred texts a day, yeah, and I mean, it's extraordinary numbers. Uh, they found that he, over a six-month period, she had, or Jonathan O'Brien had received 5,500 calls and text messages from her over a six-month period. Extraordinary numbers. Uh, she turned up at his place of work in Leinster House, the man could speak to him, and she publicly stated on Facebook on a number of occasions that he, she had taken over us. It was his fault. Really disturbing, distressing sort of stuff for Jonathan O'Brien, obviously. Uh, she also approached his daughter at place of work, asking questions about him, and she also sent him photos of his deceased father on multiple occasions. And when he made a complaint to the guard, he then she called him a rat and publicly posted, you don't rat on a Republican. Uh, there was a disciplinary hearing held within uh, Sinn Féin, 
she gave an undertaking to desist from her actions since they stopped contacting him, but she failed to do that and continued harassing him. Uh, the other victim, as I say in the case, was um, a woman called Laura O'Connell. She presented herself as a barrister to Laura O'Connell. They met in a, a community meeting about an environmental issue. Uh, she turned up on one occasion in a barrister's gown and claimed she'd just come from Washington Street Courthouse. Uh, Laura Connell became a bit apprehensive about her after a couple of meetings and began to distance herself from her. But as she did, Egan began bombarding her with emails and Facebook messages alleging she had breached her trust in matters, that she disclosed her. And again on Facebook, she accused Laura Connell of bullying her and then went posted messages from fake profiles commenting on the abuse and claimed that she was going to commit suicide over the reports that O'Connell had made against her. We heard from uh, Laura O'Connell that day she gave a victim impact statement and a really powerful one it was too. She said from the day that she met... Uh, Egan on the 8th of March 2018 and introduced herself to her at the residence group. Uh, she said, since that day, my life has never been the same. She's mentally broken me, set me back in my health and impoverished me to the point where I now have to engage with insolvency services and defend an execution order for an exorbitant legal bill that I now have to try and pay for. We heard that she, she and Jonathan O'Brien had to go and get high court injunctions against Sonia Egan to prevent her from posting the false allegations on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And that's left uh, Laura O'Connell with €26,000, wow. which she hasn't been able to pay. Well, where were so she and Jonathan O'Brien um, uh, known to each other? Were, did they both know that this was happening simultaneously by the same that, person? I think it became clear at some stage, but I'm not sure when that, that, that emerged because uh, Laura Connell wasn't a member of Sinn Féin. She just was involved in this environmental group on the north side, uh, concerned about her environmental issue. She said in her victim impact statement, four years later now, I'm but a shadow of myself. As a lone parent with an underlying illness, I have built up resilience to difficulties and obstacles. However, these four last years have been an ordeal that no resilience or strength could possibly overcome. At 43 years of age, I thought this was desperately sad. I'm a broken woman and on my knees because of Sonia Egan. She's put an end to all my voluntary work in the local community and further feel that she turns up everywhere. She's put an end to my ongoing learnings. She's put an end to restful nights. She's put an end to me feeling safe, general safety and peace of mind. There's not a day or an hour goes by that four years trauma haunts her. And yet, she said, uh, there are still ongoing and current traumas by Sonia Egan as she continues to watch, beset and follow me. We heard from... Uh, the defence for Sonia Egan uh, barrister uh, Anthony Salmon presented a, a report from a forensic psychologist in which he said she'd been sexually abused as a child but Gardy Sergeant she said he didn't accept that he didn't f- accept the findings of that what we did hear as well then was that she wrote a letter of apology uh, in which uh, she said that uh, she deeply regretted her actions and that she didn't actually realise the impact they were having until it was too late and gone out of control. Upon reflection, I'm incredibly sorry for my behaviour. In no way does any, my, does any of my past experience justify my offending. I did not realise the extent of my behaviour until it got out of control. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm truly sorry. I wish the complainants the best of luck. May God be with them and their families. As I say, the case was that evidence was heard last month but it was adjourned to yesterday for sentence and Judge Helen Boyle then delivered her uh, decision Mr Salmon asked her to put it back for a period perhaps but she uh, said no it was too serious the abuse was or the harassment was too serious too sustained and too extreme and she felt she had to deal with it by way of a custodial sentence Sure Now Egan had no relevant previous convictions and uh... She had no relevant previous convictions no that's true and the report by uh, the forensic psychologist Dr Randall also found that she was at low risk of reoffending. but notwithstanding that and again Judge Boyle said you know another mitigating factor was the fact that she pleaded guilty albeit late in the day but it did um, save her victims the trauma of having to give evidence and testify in a court case and for that reason the 
that was a mitigating factor to, which was to her credit. The maximum sentence, I should say, in cases like this is seven years. She said the headline sentence should be three and a half, but because of the guilty plea, she'd bring it down to three. And then she said getting factors she would suspend the final year of it so effectively she's got to serve two years in jail with on good behaviour on provided she uh, keeps the peace and be good behaviour she also made it a condition of the sentencing that she would have no contact or given undertaking that she would have no contact directly or indirectly via social media or otherwise or post social media about Jonathan O'Brien or Laura O'Connell for a period of seven years and also that she wouldn't travel or um, be within f- uh, 50 yards of them at any time. So there are the conditions attached, but she started, as I say, yesterday, she began a, a two-year prison sentence for this harassment case. Mm-hmm. So, so what began as possibly, um, you know, cowardly, insipid texts that were, I suppose, thought to, that would remain private were all actually gathered, as they are in any case, uh, as evidence against uh, s- someone who was per- perpetrating these things. Uh, and of course, the electronic database is holding everything that was that was published or, or that was sent privately. And, and then, when it comes to a court case, everything is public. Now it's all over the papers. Now it's in the broadcast and social media. Now it's everywhere. And and the very real uh, fact of a two-year onerous prison sentence is now upon her. Yes, and I suppose I mean, but really, I suppose in terms of, as I said, the victim impact statement from. Uh, Laura O'Connell was extraordinarily powerful for a woman to sort of admit she was on her knees because of this and, and a broken woman was heartrending to hear that and hear deliver that uh, victim impact statement herself but I suppose the other thing that sort of jumps out at you is just the number of texts that Jonathan O'Brien got you know mm. uh, no, not, not questioning the you know the, the obvious discretion of the court but with such a strong vic- victim impact statement is that negated then by the guilty plea? Well, the guilty plea obviously meant the victims were spared the trauma of a trial. Yes, so, and, that's, uh, and that's why it's reduced time. Uh, well, yes, I mean, well, that would have been provided if, if it had gone to trial and she'd been convicted. Yes. Uh, we, 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 I mean, you know, you generally uh, accuse people, get credit for pleading guilty, as it were, so that's taken into account in the sentence. But, you know, a two-year sentence is still substantial. Uh, but as I say, the figures that jump out in terms of those uh, 5,500 and... Uh, in a six-month period, I mean, that's extraordinary. There are, those numbers are just, you know, uh, what's the phrase, off the, off the, <laughs> off the scale. Off the scale. Uh, and, and, yeah. and possibly happening day and night. Now, there's another story has just broken, Barry. I hope you have time on Ballyfehan woman Nora Sheehan, whose body was discovered in West Cork after disappearing in 1981. Yes, uh, there's a man who you understand who appeared in court in Skibreen this morning. Connection with that, it's a 41-year-old murder investigation. I know the serious crime review, Garda serious crime review, the cold case team have been looking at this and obviously... Uh, they've uh, made progress to the point that they've sent a file to the DPP who's decided there are charges to answer. So there's a, she was last seen alive, I should say, outside the South Infirmary Hospital in Cork uh, on the 6th of June 1981. So it's almost... Uh, it's just over well, that's over 40 years. years. 41 years ago. So um, it's certainly in terms of cases that I've covered, I think it's um, it's the... Uh, the, the longest uh, investigation that I'm familiar with. I'm just looking here. The uh, poor woman was born 27th of March 1927, so uh, 81 would have she been 44. Yeah, around, around, uh, around that. But she was last seen alive June 6th outside the South Infirmary Hospital in York City. And a man was charged with her murder in the weeks after the discovery of the body. However, a nulla prosecute was uh, entered by the state in the case after the death of the pathologist who carried out the post-mortem. So I guess it must be advances in, in DNA and that sort of science that is bringing this new focus. 
perhaps, as I say, we learn out more, or we learn more uh, perhaps this morning, but uh, as I say, somebody appearing there at half ten, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll, okay. I'll take my leave if you make and uh, make my way as it were down, down west. A busy day in the courts. It's a tough job, Barry, but you do it so well. Thank you very much. Once again, thanks, bye-bye. That's Barry Roach, uh, Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times. And let's get back to finishing our look at the morning papers uh, because there are some big stories still to get to. Cork is ready to blast off with the Rocket Man. No, it's not the salad shop, uh, that lovely chain that was going uh, in uh, one of the Princess Street, was it? Uh, This is Winthrop Street, that's right, Uh, Jack Crotty's place. What a great place. Uh, Jack's gone on to uh, bigger and better things now, of course, uh, with his uh, local produce enterprise, uh, which is neighbour food, and every success to him. Uh, more than 30,000 Elton John fans due to descend for the Parky Kiev event on Friday for what will likely be the pop superstar's last ever outdoor appearance in Ireland. More than 30,000. Um, shouldn't it be more than 50 or 60,000 in a place that size? Um, Aiken Promotions event coordinator Jim Clark said he had no doubt it would be a superb concert from the Rocket Man, who has a repertoire dating back to the 1960s. He said the gig was expected to deliver a significant ripple effect boost to Cork's economy as concert goers flood into the city this weekend. Over 30,000 tickets have been sold, we're told, for the Leaside gig. Over half of them have been bought by Cork fans. However, concert goers from all over the world will flock to Parky Kiev. Uh, tickets sold to Elton fans, apparently, isn't a great technology these days. From Dubai, Estonia, France, Great Britain, Germany, Israel, Latvia, Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Portugal, Romania, Russia, Singapore, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Taiwan and the US. So people are coming in from all sides. Actually, uh, as part of a little bit of research into an article yesterday uh, that we did on the programme, I spoke to somebody who works in the scanning of tickets business uh, and who regularly attends concerts and uses the uh, the scanning machine to verify ticket entry. We had a, a young lady refused entry into the Lewis Capaldi gig yesterday and a bit of an explanation I sought uh, and did certainly get. Uh, what happens in some cases, and you will have heard uh, Aiken Promotions yesterday saying only buy your tickets for Elton John from Ticketmaster. What happens if you buy them from secondary agents, you buy them on Snapchat or you buy them uh, and get the picture of the of the barcode on the ticket sent to you all that person has to do to stop you getting in is to turn up first themselves because they have got a valid ticket. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened in the case of uh, the young lady yesterday because it did seem to be a very, very genuine case. But take it from the ticket scanner's perspective. Uh, if they're scanning machines, and it's the same as scanning going through uh, uh, to an, uh, a flight in an airport, it is so detailed these days uh if the ticket comes up as already in the venue, what do they expect them to do? Uh, so I'm not saying 100% it happened in this case, uh, but lenience can only be given. They'll probably send you then to the Ticketmaster office. Uh, you can show your ticket there, and they can, uh, they'll know exactly by scanning it when it was bought, who it was sold to, who that person is, and whether that ticket was used to access the ground on the evening. So all someone really has to do if they want to catch you is to sell you their ticket online, turn up before you, and you're not getting in, even though you've paid for the ticket. And if you don't know them, then you've no recourse. And I'm not saying that once again applies to what uh, the conversation we had yesterday. Uh, but just a look at it from the poor beleaguered ticket scanner's side and that they have a job to do. And they're not about to let in uh, the same ticket twice, three times, four times over. Uh, the troubled son of celebrity chef Rachel Allen was back behind bars last night after a judge advised she needed time to read reports. Joshua Allen appeared at Cork Circuit Criminal Court 
to appeal a sentence of two months for possession of cocaine in July 2020. Six weeks before that, he'd been released from Cork Prison after serving half of a 30-month sentence for dealing cannabis. But because of reoffending, he may have to serve the second half of that sentence. And yesterday, the court heard that his grandmother, Dorina Allen, of internationally acclaimed Ballymaloo House and Cookery School, had written a letter in defence of her 22-year-old uh, grandson, I suppose, uh, saying uh, he had made mistakes. She said he was uh, changing his ways uh, and that in late 2020 he had discovered boxing and mixed martial arts and is turning over a new leaf. That's in the sun today. The Independent has abusers faced 10 years in jail under a 360 million euro domestic violence strategy. Uh, this has been widely welcomed. Uh, criminal penalties for domestic abusers will double to 10 years in prison and double the number of refuge spaces will be created under a 360 million euro plan to try to end domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. Justice Minister Helen McEntee will today bring the third national strategy on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence to Cabinet. It's expected the strategy which vows to have zero tolerance for violence against women and domestic abuse will be published later on today. And a couple more and uh, we'll get down to the business of the programme. Food allergies are costing €1,600. Euro. Connor Pope is writing in the Irish Times that adults with allergies are likely to spend over 1600 more each year than those with no allergies according to research from the state's food safety watchdog. It's estimated the financial burden for a child is €1,439, rising to €1,602 for an adult. Medical costs, costs associated with food and costs of missed days of work, school and college all contributed to the significantly higher cost of living. Uh, The HSE chief was not forced out. Uh, Paul Reid making most of the morning papers. Uh, HSE boss Paul Reid was mulling over resigning from his position for some time and was firm with Health Minister Stephen Donnelly with his decision. Senior sources have said Mr. Reid's decision to step away in December was solely due to wanting to spend time with his family. But yet again, another high-profile health area uh, senior executive stepping down. One in ten have tried to take their own life as a stark headline on page eight of The Sun today. Almost half of all Irish adults have a mental health disorder. And one in ten have attempted suicide. These stark figures were revealed in a new study by academics from three top universities. Maynooth University, National College of Ireland and Trinity College Dublin. Uh, and, and the report's based on a nationally representative sample of 1,100 adults and is the first of its kind here. And finally, health warning over illegal tanning drug. Be careful out there. The online Barbie treatment can result in death. Uh, a major health warning has been issued about an illegal tanning product uh, that users inhale or inject, would you be well, risking a life-threatening anaphylactic shock. The controversial self-tan is not authorised in Ireland, but the Health Products Regulatory Authority have said many people here have suffered serious side effects. These include moles, vision loss, stroke, muscle tremors, and anaphylaxis, which can lead to anaphylactic shock if untreated by a doctor. Uh, Melanotin 2 has been dubbed the Barbie drug, uh, not to be confused, I imagine, with melatonin, which is a a natural supplement uh, that helps sleep and indeed is produced by the body. This is Melanotin 2 and has been dubbed the Barbie drug and is supposed to give users the same skin tone as the toy doll. What do you mean, plastic? The HPRA's Director of Compliance, Gronia Power, warned 
Melanotin 2 is a real risk to health. We urge people to consider the fact there is no supporting safety data available for this substance before they inject it into their body or inhale it into their lungs to get a 10. Uh, we're seeing the growth, of course, of marketing and promotion uh, of these type of things, very much akin to the uh, marketing and promotion of cosmetic products. And uh, Spray Tan is a big, big business right now with the uh, kind of demise of the tanning shops and the the, uh, the tanning light beds. Uh, but put simply, tanning injections or nasal sprays to replicate an aspirational body image is just foolish. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Brinderville Show. Now, Nadim Hussain went on hunger strike to stay in this country last year as he was due to be deported. He was eventually given permission to leave and uh, was deregistered. He's now on the housing list for six months and said he's under pressure to leave the Kinsale Road Direct Provision Centre. Good morning, Nadim. Good morning, sir. Now, uh, I know English isn't your first language. It's coming on very strong. I know you spoke, yeah. you, you spoke on this programme before. Uh, but tell us your situation. You went on hunger strike. Uh, you're now deregistered and you've been on the housing list for six months. Yeah, well, after that, sometime when I got the status, I had to go for my GNIV. And in GNIV, you know, on December, everything was closed. So I was going to the Garda station for the registration. And after some time, I will be called by the appointment by the Garda. And then I got my GNIV. When I got my GNIV in the same situation, I straight away go to the city council for registering if I am eligible or not. And after some time, I was registered in social housing, one bedroom property. I have sent you that uh, later also. Okay. Uh, what's the initial reason you arrived here seeking asylum? Asylum because every because my father and mother was killed. My father and mother was killed by BGP government in 27 March 2018. I came on island, then I got for my asylum. Okay. Uh, I was a political connected by CPIM. And there is, everybody knows in there, if you will see any Facebook, anything from Modi government, you can see over there what is the situation of here. Mm-hmm. In UP, they have killed, till now, so many Muslims. Okay, I'm sorry to hear about, about your parents. Uh, and, and coming back to your own quest, um, you, you've, you've felt strongly enough to go on hunger strike about it. Uh, you've had some very high-level political operatives um, advocating for you. You've had correspondence from the Department of the Taoiseach. Uh, yeah. You've also had uh, other political representation. Mick Barry raised your story in the Doyle and urged James Brown, the Minister for State for Law Reform, Youth Justice and Immigration, Paul Murphy to also. take action. Even Paul Murphy also helped me. Paul Murphy. Thomas Gold also helped me. Yeah. Okay. What exactly are you looking for? Because I know there's going to be people saying... We can't house our own homeless without no. without housing the asylum I'm seekers. Not, and that is I'm a, not, that's a I'm natural saying, thing. To, yeah. yeah, it's a natural thing. I also know that there is an issue on housing because the most of the even Irish people also, I can understand, who are homeless. But my question is only one thing, why this is happening? This is from the government, why this is happening? Why are people are going homeless? Why? Yeah, it's it's endemic in this society for the last 10 years. It has been, in my opinion, conveniently brushed under the carpet by 
Brexit now issues and COVID came, issues and now yeah. and inflation now the ISIS issues. Came, IPS came, you have se- I have sent you the letter. After some time, he called me. He said, yeah, Nadim, you got a status. You have to go move out. You look house. So my question is another. If the president of Ireland is saying that housing is not a crisis, it's a disaster. Am I right? Yes, you would be right. But This is said by the president of Ireland. So from where I will get housed now? Uh, Nadim, are you able to work in this community? Do you have that clearance? What, sir? Are you able to work? I believe you, you did work through the pandemic, did you? Yeah, I'm working. I'm working as a security. Okay. In Mahang Point Shopping Center in G4S. I'm working. And do, you, I'm working. do you have any dependents? No. Okay. Uh, that would probably not make you a priority on the housing list. You're, you're, you're also... Uh, you're staying very close to two other refugees. We have one of them here on the line right now. We'll talk yes. to, to the other one as well. One is Assad. Hi, Assad. Yes, uh, this is me speaking. Hi, yeah, you're are from you? Pakistan. You're here for seven years. Uh, yeah, I am, yes. And what's your story? I believe you met somebody in direct provision, did you? Did you fall in love or something? <clears throat> like, I think uh, we are talking about some different issues. That I would love to describe on that as well. Um, the issue is, if you want me to talk on the housing issue, can I say something? Sure. Yeah. Uh, actually, the issue is that uh, um, at the moment, there are no houses out there. The houses which are available on rent are very expensive, like rents are very high. And uh, at this minute, if uh, we are eligible for social housing and HAP, uh, we have been approved for HAP as well. But uh, with the HAP, even with the HAP, the rents are very high. Yeah, so you're on the housing because- list and you qualify for HAP, but uh, you obviously can't afford the very high prices. Uh, yeah, and uh, basically, if uh, if we will look around, there are no houses available on rent. Basically, houses are not available out there. Mm-hmm. And at this point of crisis, when everyone is saying there there are no houses outside, and um, the, the official from IPAS, he came down to Kinsale Accommodation Center, and he threatened many of us of eviction verbally. Like, uh, they didn't give us any kind of written notice, but uh, like they came down and verbally threatened many of us of eviction. And they are bringing other new people um, and putting them six people in one room. Mm-hmm. And, and right now, like they have brought, I think, six or 12 people from uh, some other place. And they are living in two rooms. And uh, in each room, there are six people. And they have like uh, put the mattresses on the floor and uh, they are sleeping on the floor. So okay. at the minute, just to avoid the tag that they are not homeless, they, are, they have given them six bed spaces in one room and we are already living in this accommodation center, two persons in one room. Okay. So at N- Nadim, point, Nadim said in, in, in a previous uh, text that the center is at breaking point. Many people are sleeping on the dining room floor. That's correct, is it? Yeah, they are, at the minute they are planning to bring some people in social room. Like we have heard that the, the social room where we gather and we talk to each other. Like that is one social room we have. Uh, we have heard that they are planning to bring people over there in that social room. They are going to utilize the social room as a, uh, as housing the those inmates, like those people who are um, they like who they are bringing new. So this is going to happen. But they have already utilized two offices 
uh, for like this this purpose. They they have put the batteries. They have removed the chairs from those offices. There are two rooms, and there are already people in there. So this is already happening. And, so so the pressure um, is on you guys from the authorities to move out. And and they're yeah. they're probably ticking the box and saying, well, these guys are on the housing list and they qualify for HAP, so out you go. Yeah, well, the issue is that there are no houses available. Um, the rents are very very high, and basically, very few houses are available for rent. And if we go on rent, for example, if I go for a house which is very expensive and I'm paying very high rent, and I, I'm uh, then I'm told by my owner, the landlord, that you should be moved out or you should leave the house within a year or two, then there would be no house available outside because we are already uh, uh, facing the shortage of houses. So I would be a homeless within one or two years again. So uh, at this point of time, it was not appropriate for IPAS to come down here and threaten us of eviction. And one other thing he has said, we would move you into another less equipped, less facilitated accommodation. <clears throat> I don't know what that means, but uh, uh, they definitely said this to me like um, I asked him uh, if I like if I'm unable to find a house what would you do and they said like we would move you into less facilitated accommodation I'm already living in uh, a room where we are sharing a room like we are two people in one room and I'm sharing that room with the other person and my whole stuff is in that room yes okay like Asan, my- I, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to uh, contest or, or put any questions about your, your right to be here or indeed uh, that you don't deserve the biggest of Irish welcomes, but we're getting a number of texts, which is which is going to be natural considering the topic, saying that the reason why there's a housing crisis here is because of the numbers of foreigners in our country taking Irish homes. Now that was an argument that was put forth in Britain, uh, and and still doesn't resonate too well. Uh, I, I think it was a factor in the Brexit issue, uh, and I think the uh, the number of foreigners in Britain they now realise they needed to do the menial jobs the Brits won't do. Um, so they're not seeing any positives there. But would you agree there are an awful there's a, there there is an inordinate amount of pressure on our housing system, not just by the very deserved Irish citizens that need accommodation, but by the amount of asylum seekers and foreigners essentially here as well. Uh, I agree with you uh, to a certain extent, but I just want to add something here. Uh, there was a new I- news item in breakingnews.ie about Dr. Lorcan. I think he's a housing policy analyst. So he said basically that uh, it, it was yesterday or day before yesterday it was published. So he said that there are 166,000 houses available. They are vacant and they are they're not being maintained by the housing council. So basically that is the problem. If um, there are many homeless people outside why the government is not looking into that number which is mentioned by Dr. Lorcan so uh, you should look into that number sure. that is a huge number 166,000 houses which are vacant and not being maintained by the housing authorities and um, uh, they are basically just uh, trying to avoid the tag of uh, making these people homeless who they are putting uh, six in one room so they are just avoid- avoiding the tag of making them homeless they are okay. not homeless but they have one bed space, they're sharing six, uh, like with five other people. Technically, you're so, not homeless, but uh, technically, you're not living in habitable conditions. Yeah, technically, they're not responsible for housing them because they're not ho- homeless, technically. Yeah, Na- so, Nadim, I'm going to talk to Akram uh, in a second as well. Uh, yeah. Nadim, if, if you guys are on the housing list, would, would you facilitate um, living together in one house if, if, if that became available to you? Um, yeah. Like... Uh, 
Let's let Nadim answer here. Hello. Yes, Nadim. Yeah, what you said, sir? Would you live with your two friends, Asad and Akram, in one house, or are you all looking yes. for separate houses? No, no, no. We are not looking any separate house or any like this. We need only shelter, shelter and roof. Okay. Uh, I, I want to bring in, uh, thanks, Nadim. I want to bring in Akram here because I don't have a, a hell of a lot of time left. Akram, good morning. Good morning. Okay. Uh, I needed to go away from Akram. Yeah, Nadim was on speaker there and wasn't, wasn't, very, wasn't very clear. Akram, tell us your story. You're from Pakistan, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. And you were in Dublin first before you came to Cork? Yeah, I was in Balchistan before. I was there for about four months. And uh, then I got transferred here in uh, Kinsale. And I've been here ever since. Are you on speakerphone there, Akram? No, no, I'm not. Yeah, it's very hard to hear you. Okay. I okay, let, let me, if you're in the same room, let me just fix this fader here. Okay, try it now, Akram. Hello. Yeah, yeah. it's better. Okay. Okay. Okay, so you've so, been in the Kinsale, you came here three and a half years ago from Islamabad, and you're here ever since in the Kinsale Road Accommodation Centre. Now, back home isn't livable, of course, the living conditions are difficult there, there's a different party in power than the one that oh, yeah. was uh, led by Imran Khan, who was ousted in April. Now there's a serious political unrest there, um, but yeah. I, think, I think you're about to, concern, uh, to contend that the Kinsale Road Accommodation Centre isn't livable either. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's uh, the way the oppression, they're not giving us any written warnings, but verbal warnings are, you know, they're coming and, you know, threatening us to, you know, move out and, you know, trying to find a place. And if you go outside and uh, you can't find a place, you know, yeah. no locally anywhere, no in the city, around city 25 kilometers, you know. So if you don't have a motor, if you don't have a, you know, convince to come, then it's just another problem, you know. So that's... Okay. These kind, these kind of things. So the the people issuing the verbal warnings, I'm sure, are fully knowledgeable that you haven't a hope in hell of finding somewhere once you once you go out. I mean, outside. I mean, mostly. I'm not going to mention any name, but mostly, when other people coming in thousands and they are getting houses, is no house left. You know, to even look for it, even pay extra extra rent for it. Oh, you know, we all can chip in and pay pay extra rent for the place, but we can't find the place. You know, so. Yeah, you, you and many, many other Irish people, it's all, it's a huge yes, contest. Yes, it's a, it's a huge problem, you know, most people, even the, even the Irish homeless people, you know, I mean, if they accommodate their own people, they can't accommodate their own people, how are they going to accommodate us, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a catch from 22, you know? So, do, do you realize and appreciate that you're in such a heavy contest for housing uh, with members of the Irish homeless, uh, with members of the yes. Irish population? Uh, yes. and that they may feel a certain sense of entitlement to get the whatever little bits well, of crumbs are on the table before you guys. First, you know, before before we can get it, you know, but, but they can't. Out there, out there is a new house, you know. So how are they going to give me or the Irish person when there is no house, you know? Okay. Uh, notwithstanding, you, you, I, I know you probably came from the political unrest in Islamabad and Pakistan in general, but how did you end up in Ireland of all places? Uh, why here? Well, I I had a I didn't want to claim asylum before here. I, when I came here, I had a heart attack, and uh, after having a heart attack, I uh, ended up doing a uh, claiming asylum. You know, so. Okay, and have you found work here? Are you entitled to work? Yes, yes, uh, I ha- I have been entitled to work here, and I have been working. You know, okay. So. 
I'm going to get a wrap up from each of you in a moment. It must take a commercial break. Will you will you hang on the line with me there from the Kinsale yeah, Road no, Accommodation no, Centre? No. Thanks, gentlemen. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. And you're very welcome back to the Neil Prenderville Show coming up on the eight minutes to ten. And I want to wrap up with some final comments from uh, Akram and Assad and uh, Nadim. Akram, are you still there? Yeah. yeah, what, yeah. What, what, what's your plea to the Irish government? It's, it's not just for a house for yourselves. It's fix the enormity of the homeless problem so you might have a chance, is it? Yes, yes. I mean, as my friend mentioned earlier on, there is 166,000 houses available to be get fixed. Why don't they fix that problem? And then everybody can have a house, you know? Okay. Uh, may, maybe the person getting the house could be involved in the fixing up. That would be even cheaper. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and give a lot of incentive, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. All right, Akram, thank, thank you very much. Uh, let's let's go to uh, Nadim again, who's on line two. Hi, Nadim. Hi, sir. What's your plea to the Irish government? I have two pleas, sir. One, please stop this threatening from IPAS. Line is very bad. Can you repeat that? I'm saying please don't threat us, IPAS. It's a request to the IPAS, please don't threat us. Please. Oh, okay, where do you go from here, do you think? Sir, we are trying. I am trying my best to do something to go outside. I'm trying my best. Okay. I am pleading to the government also, please look to everyone, not to me only, to the Irish people, to the other homeless, and to us also. Equally, oh. please. Okay, outside of your uh, failure to find suitable accommodation, let me put it that way, has Ireland yeah. itself been generally welcoming to you? What, sir? Has Ireland been welcoming to you? Yes, well, how? Without a welcome, I have a status. Without a welcome, how I am in here? Mm-hmm. And you're thankful you're for that? I'm very thankful for that. Very thankful, even... See, after at last, I said I can do anything for this country. This country gave me food. This country gave me medicine. This country gave me a life. If any in my whole life, if I can do anything for this country, that will be a pride for me. This is my country and Cork is my family because they support me. Okay. Uh, and you had I'm, to go on a hunger I'm, strike, uh, that, and that was last year, of course, in hopes of being yes. granted permission to stay. Now you're here, uh, you're on the housing list, you won't be able to get HAP, and you, won't be, you don't have the affordability, even if you could find a house. Uh, Nadim, okay. I want to wish you the best and, uh, and get a final comment from Asad as well. Uh, morning again, Asad, what, what, what's your plea? Um, my plea would be to like uh, stop this threatening attitude, like uh, don't threaten us because we are in the same boat with all other Irish people who are trying to find a house. And uh, if the government can uh, resolve the issue of housing crisis, uh, they can resolve it in many ways by like uh, telling the banks to give good mortgage amounts so people can buy houses, uh, so make it easier for people to buy houses on mortgage and uh, the empty houses should be utilized. The empty houses are out there, they are not being maintained by the uh, city councils and you know there is a big strong uh, 
a group behind it. Like they, they are not willing to do something about the housing crisis. So uh, they should like look into the matter and like uh, uh, try to be lenient about this. All right. If they cannot resolve the housing crisis, then they should not come here and threaten every one of us. Yeah. They should not like put six people in one room and say that they're not homeless. Like this is a joke. It's massaging the numbers, massaging the figures, I think. Akram, yeah. Najim and Asad, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And uh, now with, very uh, with very little time, Left, we may have to uh, come back to this after uh, 10 o'clock. Catherine's on line four. Hi, Catherine. Hi, good morning. I'm just listening to your uh, three guests there, and uh, my theory is quite simple. I do not believe that there is a homeless crisis, a housing crisis. What I do believe is that there are too many foreigners coming into this country, and therefore that, that has created not only a housing crisis, but it has also created, as we can see, the hospital um, uh, devastation that's occurring at the moment. I would refer you to one girl that was on the Neil Prendeville show quite recently. Her name was Michelle, and she was living in her car. I remember I was talking to her. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I mean... You know, she she didn't complain. She seemed to get on with her life. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, we just I don't believe I don't believe we have a housing crisis. We have too many foreigners. What, what would you What simple. would you deem a foreigner? How would you define uh, a foreigner? Well, your three guests there, just for example. But they're, they're they're asylum seekers. They're entitled to asylum, and they're sleeping six to a room. Yeah, you know, you can argue all you like with me and, you know, fair dues if you can, but I just believe what we have to do, and I'm sort of fed up, you know, with the sentence, as I'm sure many of your, you are, Irish, it's, it's, it's an island, we are not a continent, we cannot look after the whole world. Okay. Uh, I, I and that goes for our medical system. Do you know that the children with scoliosis, with all these um, horrible, um, you know, autism? Catherine, can, can I ask you to hold? Till, can I ask you to hold till after the ten o'clock news? I'm not trying to cut you off. I'd like to speak to you again just after news at ten, if that's possible. Yeah. Sure. Okay, thanks very much. News at 10 is next. Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And uh, thanks for holding, Catherine, and welcome back. You're welcome. Now, we've more, you, now we've more time to talk to you, and I'm not going to get uh, arguing with you at all. Let's ju- just tease out uh, all of your issues. You're saying the reason we have a housing crisis is because we have too many foreigners in our country. Yes, absolutely, and you know, the, the, there's no point in sort of sort of saying, um, "Oh gosh," you know. I, I do not apologise for what I'm saying, simply because it's a fact. You know, I give you an example. We have a cocaine crisis. We have a medical crisis with all the, you know, the, the children. I I know that the parents of these children um, have been out uh, protesting and all the rest of it. Um, you know, I heard one one example. All of them sort of touched my heart. But this child who had a dislocated shoulder, I think, for for thirteen years, and it couldn't be fixed. And then we have sort of little children who have uh, two teeth problems, they have to go to Poland. I mean, what sort of a country have we become? I don't recognise Ireland as I did 
you know, I'm not... Uh, that says more about this country than it does about those arriving here. Those yeah, you're calling surely, foreigners. Surely we should, um, you know, look after... And, you know, there again, it's a saying that's quite boring. But, I mean, it, 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 we have to look after... You know, I'll give you an example. You know, if a child has been in foster care, say, for, you know, I think it's a 16 or 18 years, and they're sort of, you know, they're adult and they're put out on the street... Why are they put out on the street and yes, we, we, we home um, uh, people that are coming into this country? Okay, I have, a, I have a derogatory text here from your standpoint, all right? Uh, it's, it's calling you a racist. Yeah. Well, I read it out to you. Yeah. There's another possibly more offending term in there uh, that we'll get to in the course of the text, but let's see how you respond to that, okay? Uh, right. And here it starts. And how many Irish people move abroad? Every person knows someone who lives or lived abroad. London, America, Canada, Dubai, etc. Imagine them being treated like these foreigners are. Here, especially by that old lady who is a racist. <laughs> Told you. Oh, uh, here's the rest of it. The problem isn't the yes. foreigners. The problem is our government. A lot of foreigners oh, do a well, lot. Yes, I agree there. I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing the text. A lot of foreigners do a lot more and give a lot more back uh, than some Irish. And this is coming from an Irish person, they say. If every country yeah. only looked after its own, Irish people wouldn't have had a chance in the past. Well, I can tell you one thing. When they went to America and when they went to all over the country, they certainly didn't get free accommodation, free food, free this, that and the other. When they went there, they worked. And my parents um, were from Waterford. They went to England. Yes, it is true, but they worked um, in, in quite menial jobs, if you like, until they sort of, you know, I mean, they didn't get anything free. If you like, and uh, with regard to the, there was another point there that you said. As I say, I'm I'm um, uh, you, you know they say the war in Ukraine and this that and the other, but you know there are people who are having this you know the cocaine addicts out on the streets of Cork, Dublin, Limerick, wherever you want to call it, villages and towns, etc. But they're they're not foreigners for the most part. No, no, but that's my point. I think that, I mean, yes, it's dreadful to be um, a a drug addict, but surely, you know, there there is an... They have their own war, if you like, these drug addicts, and perhaps we should try and help them. Whereas, you know, and, and, and that's my point. I want to help people who are... Irish and um, are not living the life that I lived in, in uh, you know, an old woman that I am. Okay. <laughs> I lived, I lived, my, my job was um, a solicitor in Dublin. And then when, um, you know, I sort of came down to live um, uh, in, in um, Cork, uh, because I couldn't get the job I wanted, and this is the same to your uh, question, your um, this person who said I was an old lady. Um, I worked in a fish factory. I worked also uh, sort of cleaning um, bedrooms. Is, is that here or abroad, Catherine? Is that here pardon? or abroad? I beg your pardon? Was that here or abroad? Oh, here, you know, because when I couldn't get the job, uh, you know, I worked in um, Dublin, in the, in the, you know, with, say, the likes of Peter Sutherland, Liam Hamilton, all the rest of it. And that was my job. But when I was down here, it was not possible for me to get a job that I was trained in. 
So I worked in a fish factory. So, I mean, I don't believe this thing about, um, uh, you know, that the Irish won't do the, the menial jobs. I mean, uh, you know, I did. I did. Okay. I had no problem. And a text says, you are claiming uh, yeah. that all of this is down to many foreign nationals, but you're forgetting that these foreign nationals are also doctors and nurses, teachers, and that uh, we need foreign nationals, this texture says. Uh, texture. The housing crisis is a government issue. It's not caused by foreigners. It's caused by planning issues, by regulations, by property tax, and by punitive income tax. <laughs> But, you know, I just refer to the census and that uh, I think it's um, now um, five point something million people living in this country. I don't know if that's supposed to be a compliment or what, but um, uh, we can't seem to just house um, uh, people who are living in this country. So I think that's a lost cause. I don't think that's anything to be proud of to have this, um, you know, sort of going up in population when we certainly can't own them. But having said that, of course, when um, Michal Martin was in um, uh, and St. Patrick's Day in, 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 um, uh, with Biden, um, you know, Biden was sort of saying like how brilliant the Irish are, you know, for taking in all the Ukrainians and this, that and the other, you know. That well, I- ironically, like, Michal Martin do, wasn't do with... All- he wasn't with okay. Joe Biden. Uh, ironically, Michal Martin wasn't with Joe Biden on St. Patrick's I Day. Know that. Because I know in a cruel that. twist of fate, he contracted COVID and couldn't go to the White House. Um, uh, let, me, let me tell you, and this is a stark and very sad fact, that a total of 9,099 people were staying in emergency accommodation in this country during the week of November 22nd to 28th last year. That included a whopping 2,548 children. And that is, is according to the latest figures from the Department of Housing. Oh, that's dreadful. I mean, you know, to, 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 to start your life off as, as a young child... Um, living in, in this sort of um, accommodation. I, I will say one thing, when I was um, working in Dublin, um, I, I it's, a, it's a very short story, but um, on Saturday night, you know, the, the, you get the Sunday newspaper, and I remember this little boy, he was only about 10, and he used to be out hail, rain or snow, like um, selling these newspapers, you know, for the Sunday and um, rather tatty clothes and all the rest of it. And I got quite friendly with him. And um, I said to him, like, you know, what do you want for Christmas and all that? He's only a really, you know, a, a kid. And they're selling newspapers out in the in the night. And um, he lived, he, he told me he was football. And um, I said to him, well, where do you live? And he told me, I remember his exact address. It was, uh, I can tell you the number. Uh, and um, Summer Hill, that's in um, North Inner City, mm. Dublin. And I wasn't really familiar with that place, so I sort of said to my husband, where, well, my fiancé at the time, where is that? And he said to me, that is a no-go area, you don't go there. And I said, well, I'm going. And um, yes, it was a dreadful place. And, um, you know, I was going up the stairs, and there was all these kids on the landing, and they were saying, you know, uh, and I said to them, excuse me there, lads, I want to see John. So I went up to John, I gave him his um, football and all the rest of it. But I mean, the conditions, I, I guess you would say there were tenement houses, but these were Irish people living in tenement houses. And that struck me as just 
and out working at 10 years of age. So is that what we want for the Irish? No, it, it, no, so. no, no, it's not. But once again, you, you, you are patently blaming uh, foreign nationals arriving here for uh, a situation that's not really of their making. They need the housing as much as the homeless do because they're all but homeless. They're six to a room and ten to a room in these direct provision centres. Well, do you not think that we should hold the the the, the Irish tourists? And another thing, I'm not, you know, this um, all. Uh, what I do believe, and this is, um, is in many countries in Europe, that I mean, you're on the dole, say for or whatever you call it, for six months or nine months, but then you're gradually cut off. Whereas in this country, we uh, you can stay on the dole from I don't know the minute you're. Um, uh, when you go to work, when you start working, you can be on the door for all of your life. Now, well, no, that no, no, is no, not applicable you, you, in any other country. Well, well, you're going to need stamps paid as well. You, you know, you're going to, if, if, if you wanted to get Job Seekers Allowance now, you're going to have, an, have to have enough stamps paid back in uh, 2020. Anyway, I've got to leave it there, Catherine. I think you've had more than enough time to get your point across, and I know there are many who will disagree with it, and possibly one is in, uh, included here is Arthur. Good morning, Arthur. Thanks, Catherine. Hi, Arthur. Hi, good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. You're taking offence? Yeah, I took a lot of offence. Like, I just want to say, how dare she even utter such words out of her mouth? That is the most offensive thing I've probably heard on this station in a long time. And just the blatant blaming of foreigners for all the problems this country is receiving. And like, you can look. Half of the problems are nothing to do with foreigners, you know. Absolutely, and, uh, 100%. I agree. Simple government policies, you know. Like, I'll just give you a bit of an example of my background, right? So, mm-hmm. I moved, I'm, you might hear my accent, it's American, but I'm yes. actually not American. I'm from Lithuania. Um, okay. I left Lithuania when I was three years old, and my family uh, moved to the United States, and um, we were seeking refugee status over there because of issues that forced us to leave our country. Um, so, it wasn't by choice. That it was actually by fear that we had to leave Lithuania, you know, it was fear for my mom and her kids' lives and everything like that. So we moved to America. We seeked refugee status over there. We stayed there for a decent bit of time until essentially we were kind of kicked out, you know, because they're like, listen, we're not approving you guys for whatever reason, you know, so we got kicked out kind of way. So we, uh, my dad moved back to Lithuania. And uh, we were still in New York at the time, you know. We had a bit of time to kind of get our stuff together and go. How many years were you there, um, Arthur? So I was there for, I'd say, about nine years in total. I was in Canada for two years, and now I'm here since 2009. So, like, I've been around the place, you know, um, not necessarily by choice. It's mainly because we were forced, you know. Like, Eastern Europe isn't the safest place, and especially uh, in the early 90s, you know, when my mom was raising four kids, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. And when sure, you have it's, it's, like it's being forced. It, it's being uh, exactly. living. On, it's living under fear, uh, and uh, I, I suppose it's living under a threat of harm that actually validates your application for genuine asylum status. There you go. You know, and like I, I don't know. Could we necessarily prove it, or what was the story? I was a bit young at the time, you know, so I, mm. I don't know full details. But still, we came to Ireland at the end of the day. Now, uh, the last time I was on the show, I was talking to Neil. I was telling him exactly that. This is how I feel in general, that a lot of people are racist, you know, calling me foreigner, this, that, and the other, even the term yank, you know, it's like, I don't feel at home. I'm like, it's funny because Ireland is the place that I've been longest, you know, since 2009, I'm here almost 13 years. This is the place that I've settled the longest. I've lived the majority of my life here. I've done a lot here. I worked here. I went to college here, everything. And 
I'm very, very grateful for the opportunities that this country has given me. But do you still not feel at home then? Uh, well, not exactly, because of people like her, you know? Mm. And it's like people like her who go around saying that I'm the problem, you know? I'm a foreigner, I'm the problem. And I'm like, how am I the problem, you know? I started working from 17 years old as soon as I was able to work, legally able to work. Um, you know, I went to, I did school, I finished my leaving cert, I went into college, everything like that. Um, I, the only time I actually took welfare from this country was one they helped me pay for my college with the Susie grant. And I was very, very grateful for that because in places like America, I could be in debt 200,000 euros for a semester, you know? So wow. I didn't even want to think about college in America. So, um, over here, delighted that that happened, you know? And then the only time I ever took welfare was during the PUP or when the PUP came out and people were forced, I lost my job. I couldn't do anything about it, you know? I actually finished my degree in biomedical engineering during or at the start of the pandemic and I was sat at home with a fresh degree, not able to do anything, not able to go to work because nobody's hiring graduate engineers at the time. You know? So it's understandable you would resort to the, the, the benefits that were on offer. Exactly. And it's not like I was taking advantage of them or anything, you know, it's, that was, I was earning more than the benefits were or that were given back to me but you know at the time I was grateful that I was still able to pay my bills some of my bills you know everything I'm not going to lie I am in debt because of those two years that I was on the PUP looking for a job everything like that you know mm-hmm. and uh, I'm currently working I'm working six days a week I started studying another course in manufacturing design of biopharmaceuticals just so I can get out of the situation I'm stuck of being in this situation of poverty of like people I, I don't know like I guess attacking us people who come here to try to make themselves better, you know, like it's not okay, by but choice can, can, that I came here. Can I venture? It's, it's only on the rare occasion you would be made feel unwelcome. Like uh, that, that lady obviously touched a nerve, but otherwise, do you feel generally welcome here? Generally, for the most part, yeah. But you know, sometimes it's, I don't know, is it old fashioned people or something like that? You'd be talking to them and they hear the accent. They're like, oh, where are you from? And then as soon as I tell them, they kind of, they turn their heads a little bit, you know, they're, they're not sure of, how to talk to me anymore because I don't know did, did can, can, I, can I venture, can I venture with, uh, without trying to offend you uh, that if course. I shut my eyes I'd swear I was talking to Michael Flatley yeah <laughs> I don't know who that is <laughs> the Lord of the Dance and River Dance. Arthur, I, I, I know you were on the program last week as well so let's give somebody else a chance thanks a million for coming on Laura is on line one hi Laura hi how are you you work in a hospital no name now but uh, you work in a hospital so uh, tell us what uh, that's like um, to be honest with you, um, it's just about that lady that called in and um, was blaming all the foreigners, um, especially when she said about the healthcare system and the list. Without the adoptees that come over from foreign countries, we wouldn't have hospitals because, I mean, 90% of my workforce are, you know, foreign nationals that come over, do their adaptation and work very, very hard. And very long and hours very for very little hours. bay. Exactly. They actually get paid less than us when they're on their adaptation, which is horrific. Um, and then they have to go and try and find accommodation themselves. So to say that it's their fault, I mean, are, are they not allowed after paying taxes to have a family and live over here? Mm. It's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, there's days that they, I, I see them phoning their families over in India, Pakistan and everything. And they're over here for three to six months without their family, without support. And to hear these racist comments, like I hear them in the hospital on a daily basis as well, especially from the old Irish people. And it's, 
it's horrific. Um, it just it needs to stop. You know, it's it's the government's fault. As you're, you know, the person from the asylum that said there's a hundred and thousand odd houses sitting there empty. You know, there's there's more to this than just the foreigners coming over. You know, it's it's horrific. Laura, I, I did a little straw poll o- over the weekend. Not that many now, so it's not that big of a representative sample. It's not scientific in any way. But we were in Maidstone in Kent, uh, or is it in Surrey? I think it's in Kent. Uh, for for And I want to mention them because I know they're listening right now. Our, our dear friends John and his wife Georgie Smith were celebrating a late 50th, two years after COVID. Uh, and we had to uh, take many taxis because there's a massive train strike and public service transport strike on there. And I made a point of asking each and every one and some of the waiting staff of the party uh, and being Irish, we were kind of last to leave. We ended up, uh, of course, cleaning up the marquee and picking up all the glasses when those workers came, OK? Uh, all a great laugh. But I asked them all a simple question. Uh, what benefits, if any, of Brexit uh, are you experiencing? The answer was 100% zero benefits, right? But some of the c- kind of colour stories that came around it. One of the one of the guy's grandmother was evicted from a, from a care home because it had to shut down because all of the uh, foreign, and I say that in italics, uh, workers were deported, all but a few, and not enough to run the place. Uh, the guy who, who was running the, the kind of marquee and bar service said he cannot get staff unless he pays an inordinate amount to uh, British-born people to to come and do what was being done at normal wages by, essentially, foreigners, as they would be described. Another guy yeah. said the entire fabric of English society is falling apart. There is food shortages. They can't get truck drivers. Uh, they can't get uh, people to do the menial jobs uh, that, that these guys and, and girls were happy to do. And, and they, they all reckon that England and Britain and, uh, you know, the UK in general is a poorer place for Brexit and for the very harsh immigration laws that have come into play. Well, I mean, like, it, it just goes to show anyway, like, Cork, especially anyway, it seems to have huge retention um, issues when it comes to holding on to staff, especially for the hospitals. If we were to deport or kick out all these foreigners, as they're called, then we wouldn't have a health system. It would absolutely crumble. It's crumbling as it is with the adaptees and all these foreigners coming in to help out. And again, they're nurses, doctors, and they're entitled to families and to have lives. Um, Meanwhile, the brain drain continues as our very talented and trained uh, medical staff are getting much, much better conditions abroad in Canada, Australia, in Dubai, 100%. and places further afield. Yeah, 100%. I know loads um, of Irish nurses that qualified with me um, that have gone abroad, and they're living a much better life than I am. The only reason I can't go is because I have a mortgage, I have a house, I have a child. You know, I if, if I could, I'd uproot and move in a heartbeat. Um so, you know, the, the nurses that are coming over here, um, the cost of living, the cost of rent, I, I'd nearly be telling them don't come here because there's much better places to work. Um, so when they do come here, we should be grateful and not saying, oh, this is why we're having a housing crisis, this is why we're having a health crisis. In my opinion, the health crisis would be a lot, lot worse if we didn't have these staff coming over and working their ass off or sorry. The and I'm sure you work your ass off as well as as, as a frontline worker in the, in the hospital, Laura. Can I ask you that Brexit stall question? Though I know Brexit doesn't really apply here uh, in in this sort of a question. 
uh, Ireland of late, I struggle, to be honest, to find any metric by which this or past governments uh, c- can declare themselves successful, can declare themselves caring, or, you know, can declare, declare themselves as advocates for the Irish people. They can, they can give huge pay increases because we're legally bound to, to the top 1% and the upper echelons of society and, and uh, in, in public service and their directors general of departments. Uh, but the hard-strapped middle to low earners are really, really struggling to put fuel in the car and food on the table. Oh, no, we can't look after that till October. Um, yeah. what, what's Ireland like for a hard-working healthcare worker now? To be honest, it's, it's a struggle even week to week, you know. Um, we all, I suppose, we're all struggling a little bit. But um, there was a point there where we thought, are we even going to be able to heat our home there in the, the winter, you know. So, you know, to be honest, going to work, paying our taxes, half of it going to the tax man and then, you know, not fixing anything and just blaming everything else, especially blaming Brexit, blaming the pandemic, all these problems were here before that. Um, again, just paying the frontline workers a thousand euro, we still haven't seen that in our wages. You know, so I think some of them have actually. Some have, like the household staff and security, and we're told that we'll get paid this week. You know, um, but again, that was months ago. So to us, it was like a slap in the face, waiting for this thousand euro payment. You know, the deed of it is nearly done. You know. Yeah, but if you put um, it straight into your oil t- tank, it probably wouldn't last you six weeks. Exactly, you know, um, and especially now the way, like, I I drive a fair distance to go to work, um, so I'm really feeling it now as well. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I really think we need a shift in government, um, and again, I think it's the old-fashioned ways, voting Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, you know, it, it, it needs to change. Um, All right, Laura. So, yeah. All right, anything else you want to finish up on? Did you cover everything? No, I think I covered it. Oh, well done. Listen, thanks for coming on. That many, Not many people do. A lot of people say, I'd, I'd love to go on and give him a piece of my mind. Um, yeah. But it takes the brave sometimes to come on and speak live on the radio. Well done, Laura. Thank you. No okay, well, one final call before we uh, take a break. Colm, good morning. Hi, Colm. Hello. Hi, you're an Irish man. You've worked all your life here. Yeah, to be honest with you, it's this country that's becoming... Oh, because is... I'm not. I'm not really hearing you. Can, can, can you move slightly? Are, are you on a mobile column? I am. Can you hear me now? That's better. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. No um, problem. You're you're homeless now, are you? Yeah. I'm staying on a friend's couch, and um, because I can't afford these stars and rent, landlords yeah. are um, all after jumping on the bandwagon to get as much profit. Look, I understand if we're in the positions, each their own, but just crack with houses that have been. Basically, outrageously outpriced for renting is really forcing people to work more, eat less, uh, to bring their kids or something else they have to pay rent. I understand your rent is your necessity. Yeah. You have to have your home, but like, you can't kill yourself to pay someone else's mortgage, you know. Um, and any landlord after jumping on that bandwagon should be ashamed. Um, it's, especially in terms of this, everything, prices have hiked. Yeah, I remember the recession in, in, in the eighties, but at least then the, the one good thing was your take home pay would actually take you home. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? We were happy anyway. 
yeah. Yeah. great music as well. Um, no, you're earning every week and you pay your way. Uh, but are you saying you pay your way for yourself or so that other people can live in luxury? Well, really, I, I want to work for my kids and no one else's kids. Um, but yet again, I'm paying for kids to basically when they're turning me in to stay on the door or whatever they want to do for the rest of their lives. And, and I'm really mad as well. And, and I, even though, and, and I know from your text, you're, you're separated and have no family to turn to, but I suppose the sad ironic thing in your situation is that you renovate houses for the council, so the council, as you say, can give them to everyone but the Irish. Yeah. Well, it's even, it's even that. Look, I'd be grudging, I wouldn't be grudging anybody anything. Um, some of my best friends are from um, Angola, and they walked out of us. There's a lot of Irish that take advantage of as much as they can as well, so it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not fair to, to label all the foreigners, foreigners, foreigners. It's, if anyone is leaving us, it is our councillors and our, and our government. Um, the priorities other things rather than the most necessity, um, which is health and, and home. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, every landlord has jumped on the gravy train to uh, escalate prices. And, of course. And uh, of course. That, that, of, uh, that, of course, is in the face of increasing demand. Uh, it's not a great line, yeah. Column, so thank you for coming on, and, and we leave it there if you don't mind. Thanks. Okay, thanks, cheers. Uh, by the way, folks, there are 40 times more vacant homes in Cork than there are homeless people. That's a stark statistic. So why doesn't someone tackle this? It seems like an easy metric to tackle. There are 459 homeless adults and 17,380 vacant homes in Cork City and County. Uh, if you thought 160,000 houses around, 166,000 houses around the country was outlandish and couldn't be, well, there's uh, over 10% of that in Cork. 17,380 Vacant homes in Cork City and County. Uh, that's according to May's homelessness report and the latest CSO figures. Uh, and thanks to the production team for incessantly digging up all of the stuff that supports this uh, program and uh, allows it to be very easy for me to present. So thanks, guys. 459 adults accessed emergency accommodation in all of Cork City and County in May, according to the latest figures in the government's monthly homelessness report. But there are almost 40 times this number of empty homes. Census 2022, it's there in black and white, has revealed 17,380 vacant homes in the county, uh, 4,994 vacant homes in Cork City, and 12,286, 12,286 in Cork County. There are 109 children in emergency accommodation while all these homes sit empty and the Department of Housing's monthly homelessness report, which only records those who have accessed emergency accommodation, reported those 109 children were from 72 families, which were in emergency accommodation in May in the southwest, which compromises Cork City and local authorities, and includes Kerry as well. Uh, how and why some figures are reported by county and others are reported by geographic region is unclear. And of course, there's going to be massaging of the figures with, um, you know, people getting emergency accommodation for a night and that taking them off the homeless list for 24 hours, whatever way it works. There's 3,087 empty rental properties, vacant properties, including short-term lets across Cork City and County, uh, while there were 667 vacant new builds. Now, I don't know why there could be 3,087 uh, 3, vacant properties uh, as rental properties when you can't rent one for love nor money. And somebody's mentioned Airbnb in Cork and how big a role it's playing in the housing crisis. Um, well, I heard a story from a Kinsale business person who says they cannot retain hospitality staff in Kinsale, Ireland's gourmet capital. It's well known as the 
um, number one premier destination for the foodies and for gourmet cuisine. They can't apparently retain hospitality staff in Kinsale because they have nowhere to be. And I'm not pointing the figure, finger, but they are blaming Airbnb uh, because uh, that's the predominance of places that are for rent at very high nightly rates in Kinsale. But it's driving out the hospitality staff, apparently, that have made the town and given it the reputation it so rightly deserves. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818-104-106. Red FM. Coming up on 20 Minutes to 11, Mick Mulcahy on the Neil Prenderville Show. And a very good morning to you. How remiss of me. We're so busy, I forgot to mention Elton John. Now, you all know Elton John is coming to town on Friday night uh, to play a huge show at Parky Kiev. It's going to be his last tour event. I'm not saying he's not going to turn up at some hotel somewhere, some swanky castle or somewhere uh, and throw down a few songs, but if you want to see him on tour for the last time in Ireland, Friday night it is Parky Kiev it is, and we gave you all the do's and don'ts yesterday as well, but we have tickets each day this week, well Monday to Thursday to give away, Friday being too late of course and we have a set to give away today and we will open our lines, please don't jam up the uh, the phone lines right now because we need them for the programme. Uh, but we will play an Elton John song and this time it'll be sung by Elton John, okay? Uh, yesterday I played Ed Sheeran and his wonderful version of Candle in the Wind. Uh, but today it's going to be an Elton John song. It's going to be sometime between 11 and 12. Uh, that's the only hint I'll give you. When you hear it, we'll take caller 9 on 0818104106. But don't call just now because the lines are not yet open. Now then, let's go to the cost of living crisis, which is uh, biting on everybody now, and uh, talk on line two to Kaz. Good morning, Kaz. Hi, Mick. How are you? Oh, very good. You sound bright and bubbly anyway. Irish budgeting, <laughs> yeah. what is such a thing? Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's helping people to plan their finances and get ahead, um, which is, I think, really important right now with the current crisis that's going on. What are the main points of contention, really? What are the worry pressure points for parents now? I suppose summer's just started, so I don't want to put a downer on anything. But you've got to entertain yeah. your kids over the summer, and you've got to prepare financially and otherwise for them going back to school in September. Yeah, that is um, the main issues at the moment for families. Um, you want to keep your kids entertained without putting a strain on your budget, and then also be preparing right now for back to school. Um, which can be quite an expensive time for so many, um, especially if they're going into secondary school. And does does that really mean you have to now start to become an active parent and get out on those playgrounds and the walking trails and walk in the woods and foraging and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, you don't have to, but um, we have so many amazing things to see in this country, especially down in Cork. Um, it, it really helps. And I suppose you're showing um, your kids more um, around you, what's around you. Um, I think as well, if if you can go on these trips, you're going to save so much more money um, than if you go to somewhere where it's going to cost a good bit to, um, you know, just spend the day in, say, a, an activity centre. Whereas you can pack a picnic and... Um, and explore somewhere new. And you can even get the kids involved picking somewhere. Yes, okay. Uh, let, let, let's look at it from the top down. If, if you're hoping to entertain your kids abroad this year, uh, it's going to cost you a lot more than you thought. 
judging yes. by the rising fuel prices and the rising airline ticket prices. Then there's the worry of queuing at airports. Uh, and I know Cork has not got that issue the same as Dublin has. It was really, really bad in Dublin at one stage. Getting better now, I'm told, as they continue to recruit into the security sector there. Um, and we did, and, and this is an aside, uh, as I said the other day, uh, the airport is filthy. But that's because, and it's getting better, I'm told, as well. That's because they took people who had air, airside clearance and started training them up for security. Anyway, I digress. You also have to worry that your flight may not take off, uh, uh, which, is, which is a real worry. So you're looking to home. And if you're looking to home, a staycation with the Irish hotel prices at the moment is probably out of bounds as well. So are we now looking at caravanning, camping, B&Bs? Yeah, um, you can look at, um, also if you know people um, that are going away on their own holiday, um, I have stayed in family friends' houses as well. That's another option to look at. And then lots of day trips as well. Um, So if you're struggling to find offers um, for a whole week somewhere, why not break it up and go different days to different places around? I mean, we live in a wonderful country where nowhere is too far um, for a day trip. Um, you have the likes in Cork then of Sheep's Head, Isidani, um, you have Young Boardwalk, um, then Ballycotton Clifford is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and you can really like find somewhere you haven't been, make a day of it, um, Type a few things that you wouldn't normally eat just to make it a bit more um, of a treat for the whole family. Um, you can even um, look up things to do in each area, like there's some lovely hidden gems around the place. Okay, so there's picnic trails, there's walks, there's playgrounds, uh, but how do you keep them healthy? How do you keep the little ones healthy on, on a tight budget and uh, introduce that bit of variety and interest in the food? So I often look at um, the likes of the Super 6. So then you have your um, your fruit um, from last there. Um, also, you can, um, you know, cut your sandwiches into um, shapes to make that fun for the kids. Um, I do with picnics, though, try to keep it um, to things that they wouldn't normally have because it just makes it a bit more of a treat. Um so they might have, say, um, a yogurt that they don't normally have. Um, I don't know about yours, but mine loves um, dipping the crumble into a yogurt every now and then. Um, yeah, just just picking things that are um, healthier but still a treat. Um, so adding that variety there. Okay. Uh, so, for anyone on a tight budget, this uh, once we've had much of a summer yet. Um, how are you keeping the kids amused when it's uh, totally torrentially raining most of the time? Yeah, so we have lots of tips there. Um, we we like to do like um, fun days at home as well. So we'll do um, if if it's raining, we'll go for like a board games day. Um, another thing I love doing with them is a treasure hunt. And um, this actually can go on for quite a while because they can look for something using your clues. And then once they've found the treasure, I'll ask them to um, make up their own treasure hunt. So um, they'll come up with clues for me. And uh, it's a great way to keep them busy and keep their creativity going. Um, So it obviously depends on the age of the kids. Now, I have a variety of ages. 
But yeah, it, it keeps them busy. Um, and then another thing we like to do is get some friends around and um, get them involved as well. Okay, and what about sleepovers and play dates and that kind of thing? Can that add a little spice to it? Uh, of course, yeah. you, you know, you, you, you're going to have safety as number one priority. It's going to have to be with people you trust. Yeah. Yeah, no, play dates are amazing. And it's a great way to keep them um, socially uh, in with their friends over the summer. I think that's so important with kids. Like, uh, we noticed that probably over the pandemic there. Um, like, these kids really need to be around other kids. And, um, yeah, it's great for you as well, because they'll go off and play, um, and it breaks up the summer. Um, and then when they go back to school, they've already been around their friends um, throughout the summer. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a great way of keeping them busy, for sure. Okay, uh, let's bring uh, Linda on here, who has something to add to the topic. Linda, uh, you, you can uh, speak to us on the same thing. Hi, how are you? Very good. What What's your money-saving tip? So, um, I'm in that percentile of, um, of um, people that everybody keeps referring to as the lower uh, effective income earners. And I suppose I have to be savvy with the money that I have in my paycheck every week. Um, a couple of things that I do is um, I try to liaise with the Wi-Fi providers, the electricity providers, um, bins, mortgage insurance um, to see if I can get a better deal than I'm on currently. Um, some of the other things that I do is I try to shop for own brand food products and I um, target the reduced section in supermarkets. I find Wednesdays to be quite good. Vouchers? Um, do you do vouchers? Yeah, I do, yeah. And I try to shop around as much as possible um, depending on what offers are on during the week. So I might go to different chains of supermarkets. Um, to get what I need. So yeah, batch cooking is another uh, option, I guess, and, and, yeah, and freezing. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do that quite often. I batch cook and I freeze, and um, so I prevent waste and I reduce electricity for cooking. I also try and um, walk and cycle to the shops where possible, just so I'm saving on fuel consumption because I have to drive for work. Um, yeah. And are are, are are the savings evident, or are you, you you know you're just managing to live within a budget because you do all of these things? Are you seeing um, the savings? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like I'll give you an example. I'm with Air currently for my broadband and TV, and I got an email last week to say that there would be a five euro increase on my bill from the first of August. And because I rang them yesterday and I liaised with them, they reduced my bill. So now, in effect, I have a saving of maybe 80 euros a year on the bill that I would have normally. And that all adds up, of course, if you can do that that's in four amazing. or five different yeah, areas. Exactly. That's it. You might yeah. see it with, with one provider, but if you liaise with all of them or you change providers with all of them, you could make a significant saving. Okay, so there's a big overlap here, Kaz, uh, in, yeah. in, into what you're doing, which is, I suppose, concentrating on how to keep kids entertained for the summer and back to school on a budget. But of yeah. course, it's a, it, there are wider implications throughout the entire gambit of uh, family expenses in a home. Electricity, TV, internet, bins, mortgages, uh, insurance. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just crippling right now um, for so many families. Like, it could be so overwhelming. Um, yeah. Like, there's people looking at budgeting now that they've never had to before. Um and, like, it's kind of a necessity right now for so many. You have to, to keep going. Yeah. 
Uh, Kaz, it's it's not it's not a great line, so I'll have to leave you there. I'm afraid. So uh, thanks very much, Linda. One one more point from you, uh, mm-hmm. and and you've covered a lot of stuff there because uh, you know there are supermarkets. I'm aware of Dunn's offer. They do a kind of a ten euro off every fifty spend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know th- there are Tesco and other big multiples and Aldi mm-hmm. and Lidl and all that do their mm-hmm. weekly things, uh, but even down mm-hmm. to changing light bulbs to energy saving mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. They're expensive though to buy, but they pay for themselves in the long run. They are absolutely. Um, like we changed all our light bulbs to energy efficient ones, and it it actually did make a difference in my uh, bi monthly bill. I didn't think it would, but it it did. I think there's a horrible light off them. That's the only thing. I know that's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as nice as uh, as the filament bulbs the that gives a kind of a warmer yeah. yellow glow. Uh, they're yeah. they're very bright, and it takes a long time to get used to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll just have one on as opposed to having them all on, I suppose. Okay. Uh, and switching lights off, uh, I, I know that a lot of people are conscious now of how many times they boil the kettle. Or uh, yeah. Maybe a good tip is, does anyone want a cup of tea? Just do it in the one boil of a kettle. Yeah, or, you know, if you're making only one cup of tea, like, don't have the kettle full. You know, common sense as well, you know, only only use what you have to. Yeah. Um. But I suppose, you know, that's not going to work for everyone as well. Mm. So and we, was, we thought we were coming out of hard times. Isn't it one thing I after know. another? We're I know, I know. It's horrible, really. But look, we're, we're strong, resilient people. We'll get through it. Exactly. All right, thanks a million, Linda. Thank you. Thanks, cheers. Bye-bye. Yes, I think we're going into an inflation-led recession. It's not going to be a poverty-led recession because a lot of people have that uh, reserve, maybe not all, uh, and I empathize with those, but there are people who have a little bit of reserve cash this time, but they're now going to see it being eaten eaten into with increased food and especially energy costs as we approach the winter. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818 Cork's Red FM. And it's coming up on 5 minutes to 11. Uh, the cost of living on a budget is official now. Ireland is the most expensive country in Europe, along with Denmark. According to the latest data by the Statistical Office of the European Union, Ireland's 40% now above the EU average. We've received many mails uh, like this from listeners uh, over the past few days seeking advice as the government show no sign of an emergency budget. Nope, we can wait till October. Uh, here's one of the mails we got. It generated an awful lot of Facebook comments, which I'll get to now. Uh, I know many of us are feeling the pinch with the increased cost of living, but it's causing me major anxiety. I'm constantly down to my last few cents, and it's becoming harder and harder to pay the bills. Can you ask your listeners if there are any money-saving ideas to cut costs? Uh, it's getting to the point where I'm afraid to switch the oven on as it costs too much. How are people coping with spiralling costs? Well, we've heard from Linda, we've heard from Kaz, and there are other comments that came in on the back of that. Where where do you cut costs when no matter where you run, you go, you run into the same problem? The savings cuts are out of people's hands, unfortunately, and the help required is not being received. Another texter says, I can't believe the government is doing absolutely nothing to help the poorest, and people once again just take it on the chin. Anywhere else they'd be on the streets. So says Sonia, you'll own nothing, but you will be happy. WEF, that's the World Economic Forum. This is only going to get a lot worse, not just Ireland, but worldwide. It's time to wake up, says Mark. Have a look at the TV program, How to Be Good with Your Money. I think there are four series and two books. He's Irish, so it's about people living in Ireland. I think the best thing is to make a list of wants and needs. See if there's a way you can cut down on your needs and just get the wants. Or maybe it's the other way around. See if there's ways you can increase your income. Uh, that you're comfortable with 
Uh, that's a suggestion from Margaret. Here's a much longer one. To everyone and not to the writer in particular, if you have land, start your own vegetable garden. Walk more if you can. Switch lights off and unplug equipment. That's on standby. Get blankets and wear more clothes around the house. Bath together. Now there's a good one. Shorter showers. Bath together. Uh, reduce your drinking. Shop around. Save and cut wood for the winter. Stop smoking. Reduce your spend on the kids. Sell stuff you don't need on done deal or uh, on your Facebook page. Get a second job. Ask for a pay rise. There's no harm in asking. Get smaller cars with less tax and insurance prices. You don't need a big car. Sue your bank for changing your mortgage from fixed to tracker. Emigrate to a cheaper country until this latest bubble bursts and house prices and rents once again fall through the floor. It will. It always does. Ask your council what grants are available to help you. Uh, talk to Meals on Wheels about subsidised food for them. Uh, from them, Penny Dinners and Cork is not only for the homeless. Do not be proud. It's a short life and needs must when the devil is driving. This is the wrong equation of civilization. If you're working, check your own tax. Make sure you're in the correct bracket. Revenue will not look after you. You must keep an eye on it. And so says George. I was waiting for that to be signed off by a certain Eamon Ryan. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Frienderville Show. Well, a very good morning. Coming up on eight minutes past 11 on this uh, Tuesday, June 28th. On line two, Ellie O'Byrne from the website Tripe and Trasheen. Uh, Ellie, good morning. Morning, Mick. How are you doing? I'm good. That's an interesting name for a website. Tell us about that first. <laughs> okay, so uh, we are two freelance journalists and we founded an online substack. So that means it's delivered straight to your into your email inbox, all of our news. We do features and on Thursdays we do long reads, which tend to be kind of investigative stuff about stuff going on around Cork City and County. And we're called Tripe and Machine and we always say to people, you don't have to eat it, you just have to read it. Okay, <laughs> well done. Just a nod to the, nod to the uh, you know, fantastic Cork citizens. All right, around. fair play. Uh, now, of course, we have texts coming in, uh, people incredulous at the, some of the stats I read out, that there are 40 times more vacant homes than homeless people in, in County Cork. But it's actually true. Yeah. Yes, it is. So basically, I mean, you know, I mean, as a journalist, you get in various different things and loads of different statistics. And every uh, month you get the government homeless report, which is broken down by county. So in May, there were 459 uh, adults who had sought emergency accommodation in Cork City and County. And then the same day I just got in this thing from the, the you know, census 2022, the figures are finally coming out from that, which is a bit of a blessing because we've been working from 2016 figures for a long time. And uh, what that census data, preliminary data shows us is that in Cork City, there are 4,994 vacant homes. And in Cork County, there are 12,286 vacant homes. So okay. I just kind Vac- of... Vacant homes is one thing, because you know? that's, that's fully functioning holiday homes that people from, might come back to over, over and again here, right? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, I mean, the Central Statistics Office is amazing. So they have a full breakdown of reasons why, why homes are vacant as well. So, I mean, I suppose it's important to note that, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that every single one of these homes could be immediately turned over for, for somebody who's in emergency accommodation, you know, and when you read the, 
the full breakdown of some of the reasons. You know, I mean, some of it is quite sad. So, in you know, in Cork County, for example, um, 802 homes are vacant because their owner is in a nursing home or a hospital. You know, so that there are these stories. Some of those homes are for sale. Um, but, you know, I mean, some of it is just flabbergasting. I mean, like, county-wide, uh, there are, um, you know... Uh, 3,087 empty rental properties. With, with yeah, rents so high and so lucrative for the landlords, how could there be over 3,000 empty rental properties? Okay, well, I mean, recently I was writing about Airbnb in Cork City and County, so that includes all of those short-term lets. And we do know that landlords are, you know, being really attracted by the higher... Uh, the higher income they can generate from short-term letting as opposed to long-term letting, and that there are, you know, well over a thousand of those homes would be short-term lets that are advertised on Airbnb and places like that. I, I know so somebody, not, not in this city, in, in one of Ireland's other cities, uh, who rented a fairly substantial property uh, and paid up front for the year on the basis they could manage how they let that property themselves uh, and then let it nightly uh, and this is in, in, in a city's, you know, hotspot, entertainment-wise, if you like, and made yeah. an absolute fortune renting it by the night, by the room by the night. Uh, obviously had to have it managed, had to have their guests welcome, but they were using the Airbnb model or maybe Airbnb itself and uh, and made an absolute fortune doing that. That's only a small part of the picture. And we did actually, um, if people want to go to the Tripentrician website, we did a recent long read all about... Um, uh, Airbnb and and the impact that's having on the housing market. But some of these figures, I mean, one thing that's really stunning to me is this idea that there are 1,373 abandoned farmhouses in the county. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think I see that if I'm, like, I'm, I'd be keen on cycling and I'd be cycling around the place. And you see this pattern where you see obviously what was the original house that's fallen into disrepair and then the family you know, as they got more prosperous in their farming, built another bigger house. And sometimes you see three of them, you know, sometimes you see the newest one as well. And and those old homes, I mean, that, like that's, that's an amazing figure, really, you know, especially when you consider that, um, you know, ca- countywide, in fact, in all of Cork and Kerry, uh, there are 109 children currently in emergency accommodation in Cork City and County and in Kerry together. And we have 1,374 abandoned farmhouses. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just say, I, you know, I'm not a politician and my job is not to find the solutions to these things. My job is to, to highlight them and write about them. But especially, you know, in line, in, in line with the county development plan and the city development plan uh, that, that we recently have, where the focus is really on new builds. The focus is on, last night we had a meeting of Cork City Council where they rezoned, you know, voted to rezone huge tracts of land uh, on the basis of the fact that uh, we need all these new builds. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. Uh, we have to have supply of new housing stock. And, you know, I mean, 17 more than 17,000 vacant homes in the county, I, I, I think maybe it might be time to be looking at some kind of pattern around what we're doing with how we occupy houses. Yeah. You know? Countrywide, yeah. though, stark reading as well. There are 23,483 homes vacant for 11 years or more. Yes, yeah, they're the houses that have been vacant since census 2011. So that's 14% of the country's 
166,000 vacant homes have been vacant for 11 years. So there's some kind of problem happening here. You know, we really need to look at this as a pattern. And in Cork alone, 2% of the vacant properties have been vacant since census 2016. So that means that one in 50 of the vacant properties has been vacant for over six years there's some kind of a problem with, with how we're doing things, you know. Okay. I don't know what the answer is. If it's, you know, like the thing is, is that I know that there's a lot of calls. Got a press release in from the Green Party last week. They're calling for a more stringent vacant property tax. And I can understand the kickback against that because then when you look at the fact that, you know, some of the reasons for that vacancy is that a relative has died or is in a nursing home, you know, you, you do, we don't want a really punitive society either, but it's very clear that we're going to have to start doing something to, to look at this problem, you know? Okay, I, I mentioned Airbnb being uh, the assumed reason from a Kinsale business person uh, that they can't get their hands on and retain hospitality staff because there's nowhere in Kinsale apparently for them to get accommodation. And of course, it's not just Airbnb. VRBO is another big one there. Um, to to what extent do you think Airbnb and the, the attraction of those, you know, very high nightly rents is taking away from standard rental stock? I mean, I, I think it is significant. I think it is a big problem. I actually, when we did that uh, long read, which went out, um, I think it was in March, yeah, the end of March, um, I interviewed Tim Lombard, who is a senator from Kinsale, and he told me that he knows of one individual who had eight Airbnb properties, uh, you know, in Kinsale alone. So it's very clear that in areas where there's where there's a lot of tourism, this is going to cause some pressure. It's a business model, know? yeah. Yeah, like when I, so when I looked uh, in March, at the end of March, and I think I, I might have been on to speak to Neil about this, but when I looked in March, um, there were 62 rental properties being advertised for all of Cork City and County on Daft on the day that I wrote this article. And there were 1,089 entire homes on Airbnb. Wow. So <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a significant part of the problem. And you can see it because, as you said, the incomes are, are, are so high. So, I mean, I looked at individual cases. There was, there was one host who had earned 71,000 in a year from a, a house in Turner's Cross, you know, that's attractive to landlords. But of course, we now have legislation. Those landlords are now supposed to be applying for um, uh, retention, change of use, um, so sure. that they can, you know, it's a commercial activity, not a domestic. Yeah, now, now uh, while, while, while you're meant to tell the absolute truth on your census return, uh, I wonder, uh, there's 2,646 homes vacant for renovation. Oh, that's going to be a big boost for the DIY industry. I'd say they're on short-term let. 1,962 properties were being sold. Uh, many of them are on short-term let, I'd say. And 212 homes were empty because the owners had emigrated. Didn't bother selling. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's so interesting when it comes to Ireland and how we look at, um, you know, how we deal with vacancy. You know, the very interesting thing about this census as well is that this is the first time since after the famine that we've had a population increase. So, you know, we learn in school, when we go into school and we learn about, oh, the famine and there was emigration and stuff like that. 
What we don't learn is that the population continued to decline to a low of 2.1 million in the 60s. I mean, the country was basically abandoned. And so what used to happen is that somebody died or somebody emigrated, they locked the key in the door and they walked off. (laughs) And there was no pressure on our land use. If we're going to be a more densely populated country, we're really going to have to consider how how we use our land, how we look after our vacant properties, you know, because vacancy causes dereliction as well. That's the other interesting thing about it. We've been covering this, you know, extensively for the past year. The council has a real problem trying to collect levies. You know, there's a there's a levy imposed on on derelict properties because they crumble. They become sites for antisocial behaviour. They bring down a whole area, you know, all of this type of stuff. And so dereliction has been a real problem. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, the, the houses on nor- or the buildings on North Main Street, for example, that were just left to rot for years and years and years and became dangerous and actually fell out onto the street. So, you know, long-term vacancy becomes dereliction because you can't have a house with nobody in it. It has to be used, it has to be kept warm, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, I suppose, like, uh, and the other thing as well that's interesting is that those the figures that come from the government on the number of, of homeless people, um, that has to be, you know, the homeless problem is much bigger than this visible problem as well. Yeah, so the so figures are being massaged, basically. Well, those 459 adults that you have to you have to register for and ask for emergency accommodation in a local authority to be included in those figures. So, you know, it doesn't include, uh, you know, people who are couch surfing, people who are kind of staying in unstable situations for long periods of time. So, you know, it's, a, it's slightly... Um, it is. It's not exactly massage, but it is only the most basic level of people who are actually in emergency accommodation. Yeah, so, so soft you know, touch I, figures, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I do think that just by, and that's the freedom of writing the drive team that's brilliant, is that I can do things like this, like just by looking at these figures with a different lens and going, okay, the government is telling me 459 adults accessed emergency accommodation. Here's the 17,380 vacant properties and the, you know, the, the empty rentals and the 1,300 abandoned farmhouses in the county. And I just, you know, I think that it's a value that we look at those things. It's a snapshot. Well, there, there's, there's a possible supply of accommodation outside of, uh, you know, maybe you have to get renovation planning, but it's essentially outside of the, the planning process. It's just, you know, these are all fixer-uppers or whatever, and they could... Uh, help to defray the huge waiting lists for housing. And I wonder if some of the solution to this is more along the carrot, not stick thing. I wonder if we could have better grant systems, more flexibility. You know, when you talk to people, say when you talk to people about like the whole idea of living above the shop, because in Cork City, we can quite clearly see, you look at the shop fronts and then there's no one living above most of them. They're just empty. But when you talk to people in planning, they'll tell you that there are building regulations and fire and access problems, you know, and some people have been saying we need, you know, we need to kind of re-examine those things as well to make sure because, you know, we have a, now we have a city development plan and a county development plan that are both telling us that we need to have higher density housing. Are we looking at a skyscraper future, Ellie? Well, I have written 
quite negatively about that in the past because I don't think that we have factored in. You know, I got a press release the other day from uh, from Cork City Council about the fire service, for example. We don't have a fire service at the moment that's equipped to deal with high rise living. Okay. If there it should never there be, thought of that. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a, a huge one. Other things as well, um, mental health and isolation and other pressures on people who are in high rise. Um, you know, we haven't really uh, developed ourselves as a city yet to be able to factor in those things. You need a lot of green space. If you're going to have families and people with small children living in high rise, there needs to be lovely parks everywhere for them in order for them to have an okay quality sure. of life. So I would approach that high density thing with a with a real uh, serious proviso that you really need to look at the well-being of the occupants first and foremost with that, or else we're just making, you know, losing Cork's character and making a, a city that is unpleasant to live So what's in. the magic bullet, well, Ellie, with, with your considerable experience now on the supply and demand and, and you know, the level yeah. of each of these uh, areas? What, what, what would be the magic bullet if you were to advise government? Well, if I was to advise this government, I would ask them to first and foremost produce a comprehensive white paper on vacancy, a, a, a proper study, a, a, a countrywide study. It has to be done in a very sensitive way because you, ha- you need to be able to interview people and really figure out the reasons why properties are left vacant without condemning them because everyone has a story. And as we already said, some of those stories are quite sad. I don't want... You know, we're, there's a lot of push on at the moment for, oh, we, you know, we, we need it to increase the vacant property tax and all of this. I can understand that, but I would like to see, obviously, being you know, into gathering information sure. myself as my livelihood, I'd be more interested in, first of all, seeing a proper attempt to tackle this coming from a, a comprehensive full all-country study of what exactly is going on here. And then we can find a balance of stick and carrot because the other thing as well, you know, like say if you go to France, there's the Gis, for example, or in Italy they call it agriturismo. They have um, subsidised, you know, they farmers renovate properties and convert to tourism, for example. So could we alleviate some of the Airbnb problem by making sure that farmers in beautiful rural settings are converting those derelict farmhouses and renting them out as some income. Everyone's worried about farm incomes as well. Are there solutions like this that we're just not exploring? And it seems to be because the push is just on to cover the country in concrete now. It's all about building the new homes the most sustainable home is the home that's already in existence. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to finish up with some text, but uh, the uh, increase in population you mentioned, I think we're over 5.1 million now for the 32 counties anyway. Uh, 26 counties, I beg your pardon. And um, that demands we have 11 more TDs. Would you fancy running for one of them? Because you're talking a lot of sense. Absolutely not. No, I'm going to keep turning out the turning out the articles and trying to point in the right direction. If if people want to, they can find uh, my Twitter handle is at Eliobern One, and you can also find us at Tidrashin and Tripe and Rasheen also have uh, an Instagram and a Facebook. And I just urge people to sign up because you get really good quality news stories direct to your inbox, and we're reader supported and ad free. All right, brilliant. Tripe Andersheen seems like a very, very good resource for information. Elio Byrne, thank you very much this morning for coming on the Neil Prandeville Show.
Thanks, Mick. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now, the government couldn't care less. Uh, they won't help. Why were they on their savage money? They'll never know what it is to financially struggle, says Chris. It's disgraceful in a so-called first country that people are uh, putting up with these figures and this lack of availability, says Lisa. Uh, you'll probably find tax, excise and duty make our 40% higher than most European countries too, except maybe Denmark. German VAT for groceries is 7%. In France, it can be low as 5.5%. So says Tig, and there's a few more on this uh, very emotive issue. On the point of afraid to turn the oven on, we got an air fryer, one with shelves rather than the basket style. The preheat is rapid and the cooking is reduced by about 30%, and we do almost everything in it, rarely turning on the cooker, says Linda. Uh, that must save a lot of money. Mark has a one-word text. It just goes, emigrate. Uh, another texture, Clem, says it's fairly sad indeed. Plus 25% on the electricity bills over the past few months. Filled up my car today. Cost me 20 bucks more uh, than my week of groceries. I'm sick of it, says Clem. Uh, and a money-saving tip from Joe's. Don't smoke or drink alcohol. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Prandeville Show coming up on 29 minutes past 11. Pat Phelan joins us in line two. Good morning, Pat. Morning. How are you, Mike? Very good. Uh, once upon a time called the uh, the Steve Jobs of Ireland, you were very much technologically led in your success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't go as far as Steve Jobs. <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> but the success rolls out on a continuing basis, Pat. Congratulations. You've officially brought Sisu Clinic to the USA yesterday. Tell us the story. Yeah, so uh, as probably people know, we started four years ago in Academy Street uh, on the third floor, and uh, I joined James and Brian Potter uh, as the third wheel, I suppose, the third brother, and uh, we opened our headquarters in Albuquerque Street, and uh, there's six, 16 locations now in Ireland, five coming up in the UK this year and we opened in Miami yesterday as part of a, a rapid push in, a rapid push into the US and uh, we'll open nine or ten clinics there this year and I, I suppose kind of probably a bit of pride bringing something from Cork to the rest of the world you know yeah uh, and of course you've had tremendous success in the past but Sisu in its essence is a doctor led cosmetic medicine destination is that distinct from cosmetic surgery destination absolutely um, there's no surgery um, we we administer treatments like Botox fillers dermal fillers uh, Kybella you know so we gain enough for most of our patients you know 20-25 minutes okay and was this something that was new to you when you brought your skills to bear with the uh, fledgling Cork company, shall we say? Completely new to me. Um, I kind of, I was kind of lucky, really. I'm pretty early on trends, and you know, if you're probably looking at most of the world today, there's a there's a very quick movement towards wellness, fitness, beauty. You know, kind of service-driven industries, and. Uh, so I was new to it, but James, James and Brian have been injecting almost 10 years now. So, you know, they had, they had oceans of experience. And I kind of brought, you know, the, the business side of it and the quick scaling part to it. So you're almost like the Dragon's Den style of, uh, of approach. Well, I suppose I was, I was very lucky in the two guys, you know. They yeah. had that early scaling part and I was able to come in and kind of 
I think I think the term used in technology is blitz scale. Yeah. So uh, you know, to be the biggest on the planet this year is is being fairly rapid. Wow. Okay. And are are you scaling from within uh, from profits within, or does it take uh, VC venture capital, or are you supplying? Uh, you know, is, is is there a continuing investment on your part, or are you growing organically? Um, probably a bit of both. We've raised about eleven million dollars from some of the some of the most famous VC firms in the world. Uh, Greycroft out in New York, who you know, probably Martech would probably be their skills, but they're one of the top ten venture capitalists in the world. Bullpen out of San Francisco and uh, Montage Ventures out of Menlo Park. So we have three um, highly skilled venture capital behind us. And then we have Irish um, investors as well, people like Liam Casey, Dan and Linda Coyley. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a real cork sort of a mishmash, really, of, uh, of the, the brains and, and, and the money that's been, uh, that's been part of your success. So... Uh, if if you were to break down Sisu in, in, into one little module, let's let's say let's say the cork module, uh, what what would it have? You, as you say, it's doctor led. What what other type of staff and experts is in a Sisu clinic? Well, we're a team now of over a hundred, um, and I, I I I think the key part here, and I think this is probably the successful success factor in it, is that when when we look at the competitive landscape, you know. There's kind of this super high-end, you know, almost plastic surgeon, doctor-type practice, which is very small. At the bottom end, you know, there's these med spas where people are taking charitable risks, you know, a beautician injecting their face with no medical experience. And we kind of play in that white space in the middle where, you know, you're going to see a medical professional, you're, 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 you're under their care, you know, and I... I see it kind of online quite a bit where people start talking about their clients and their customers. We don't have any of that. Uh, everyone that comes in here is a patient and they're looked after under medical rules. And under so GDPR, I, I imagine. All tons of it, absolutely. And GDPR in Ireland and HIPAA in the US, which is even, even stronger than GDPR. So, you know, everyone's a patient. Everybody's privacy is protected. And I think that's kind of really important. So I think people see, you know, that they're in a medical practice rather than, you know, some type of backstreet place. Yeah, or, or a beauty bar or whatever. Uh, so exactly. that's a very good analogy. You're claiming the white space in the middle. So these are advanced beauty treatments. And, and so tell me what you've learned about Botox, dermal fillers, skin boosters, thread lifts. What does Pat Phelan know about all that now? Well, I've had most of them. So I'm... Uh, you know, people talk about getting high on your own supply. So, uh, <laughs> not many I, men would admit that, Pat. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not that sure, but I know that it's our, it, the male population is the fastest growing segment. You know, if you were to look back, probably, you know, you might remember going to the gym, whatever, whenever, you know, if you, if you were the kind of deodorant, you were one of the unusual ones or, <laughs> you know, shower gel or whatever. I remember... I stream with Tony Martin years ago and you'd be nearly sharing bars of soap if you were having a shower after the gym. And now men are taking a lot more care of themselves. And we'd have a, we'd have a vast array of male patients from, from builders to CEOs. So that's, you know, every, everybody wants to look a bit fresher, you know. There's, yeah. this, there's, there's this 
I, I, I suppose what's called the Zoom boom, where we're, you know, everybody's working from home, looking at screens of themselves eight hours a day, and we're seeing an inverse of ourselves because the screen reverses you, and people are sick of looking at themselves and these small little imperfections that they come into, into see-through to fix yeah. Okay. Well, uh, one thing is true, Fiona, and it's 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 a, a statement that I learned from my my great and recently departed friend Colm O'Connell. He said, if, "If you're looking at a business, you're going to find out is there a gap in the market. But then you're going to find out is there a market in the gap." Yeah. And listen, this is this has grown from probably a low billion dollar industry five years ago to now growing at. 15% a year, and the whole industry is growing at 15% a year. We're growing at 100% a year. But, you know, heading towards a, a 20 to $30 billion spend within the next three years. Okay, but but while you're probably easily able to saturate one clinic's uh, capacity, uh, the only way you can really grow now is by massive geographical expansion. Is that correct? Exactly, and, and massive marketing. You know, I, I, I think you know, we went live on Sky TV with our first advert today. We just uh, were a month into a massive saturation of billboards, bus shelters, etc. So, you know, you're seeing things kind of everywhere. And we think there's a huge opportunity to become one of the preeminent brand in Ireland. But there's the, strangely enough, there's the exact same gap in the US. So we opened in Miami yesterday in Carl Gables. We're opening in Soho in New York in four weeks' time. Then we move back to Brickell City Centre in Miami after that. Then we move to Flatiron in New York after that. Then we move to Houston. So we're very planned out for the rest of the year. And then we're opening a new clinic shortly in Waterford. We're opening a new clinic shortly in Castle Knock in Dublin. And uh, then on to Hampstead, St. John's Wood and a number of London clinics. And how, so how do you recruit, Pat? These are very specialist roles. How, how do you fulfil recruitment? Um, actually, actually, quite interesting. I think, I think what we're seeing across the industry is that doctors, dentists, they're all worn out from um, HSE-type roles where they're working 100 hours a week on four salaries. So uh, recruitment at the moment is quite easy for us. In okay. The, in the U.S., um, it's a bit more difficult. But, uh, we've had success so far. We've, we've three new injectors in our Miami location before we even open. And I think what happens then is it tends to work out as word of mouth. Someone comes in, they're happy. They encourage more, more of their friends. To come in. But Pat Phelan probably won't end his business career here because I think you you like to bring a project to completion. Is there a is there an exit strategy going public, becoming the uh, object of a merger and acquisition, and Pat will suddenly pop up doing something else one of these years? Uh, listen, you know, I, I think there's a long road in this one. Um, I think there's an appetite with the three of us and our backers to take this company public. Um, but, you know, that's going to take a lot more effort and a lot more scaling to get to that stage. 
and uh, we'll see what's next. Okay. Probably not. Probably nothing. Hopefully. Well, well it's, it's, a, it's a Cork success story. We're happy, we're happy to give you the free publicity here where it all started, uh, Pat, and uh, every continued success to Sisu in your massive global expansion. And congrats on uh, Miami in uh, the USA yesterday. Pat Phelan, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Miguel. All the best. And thanks to all the Red FM for the support. Thanks, really Pat. appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Neil Brenderville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. And it's just turned 20 minutes to 12 o'clock. Now, to walk six kilometres would be a challenge for most people. To walk it for those needing a walker uh, would be an even uh, greater challenge. But to walk it for those needing a walker uh, of a very young age, uh, born with cerebral palsy, uh, is a quite a feat indeed. And I'm here to, now to speak to uh, the mum of one of these heroes, and that is Adam Clark, who crossed the line, the finish line of the six-kilometre charity mini-marathon on Monday. So good morning to Therese. Hi, how are you, Mick? Very good. Welcome to Newtown. <laughs> Delighted for you, and you must be very proud of your little man. We're so proud of Adam. He did really, really well yesterday with his whole school behind him cheering him on. Okay, let's get to the good news uh, and the fundraising in a moment, but let's get to the backstory first, right? Uh, Adam yeah. was prematurely born. Adam Adam was born in July 2016. Okay, yeah. but he was born prematurely, is that is that right? He, no, he was born just, uh, just a week. He was 38 in five days. Oh, so, 38 in so five, he, okay. He made it, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and what challenges did he face? Oh, Adam arrived very quickly into the world. Um, he was born in less than an hour. We, I think he was seven minutes in CUMH from the door to being born. Okay. Um, yeah, he was very quick. Um, a fantastic team welcomed Adam into the world and brought him around. He lacked oxygen for, for 90 seconds. Um, and then he met the wonderful Gene Dempsey and his team. Okay, but he has so, triplegic cerebral palsy. That affects. He has triplegic cerebral palsy, three of his which limbs. was discovered afterwards. Yeah, so triplegic would be three limbs, um, and I suppose it takes a while, Mick, to to diagnose cerebral palsy. It can be very tricky to diagnose at such a young age, but once they discovered that Adam had bleeds in his brain actively, and many of them, and got them under control, they were able to let Adam come home. Okay. And he, he gets so, about now aided with the walker, and he also has Ted, the power wheelchair. He does. He does. The walker's very hard for Adam, but something he wants to achieve himself. Um, he, he would love to walk. He's yeah, trying and, his best and he, to walk. He achieved the six kilometres on a cumulative basis, of course. Was it all done on Monday? No, he started in September last okay. year in Cork. At Just the doing little Marathon. bits. Doing little bits. Doing yeah. little bits. And counting and it up. And he finished this. He counted it up. We, we added it all up and he kept wanting to go ahead and, and do more. Um, he had an operation in November that threw, threw him back a little bit. It set him back a while. And he, he wanted to do some walk. Some of his walk, his marathon, he calls it, with his schoolmates. So we set about completing it with school. Mm-hmm. And, and he got there. He got there yesterday. They're just finishing school here now for, for junior infants. He must be quite, quite the star now because I, I read him out in the morning paper review as well. He's making much of the national papers. He is, and deservedly so, Mick. He's, he's put a lot of work into it. Um, he has huge support in Naval Ireland. 
huge support in school. He has a great team around him. He's been very lucky. Yeah. Is he a renewed boy now? Is he is he bursting with pride? He's bursting with pride, Mick. We, he was on Ireland AM this morning after seeing the papers and he, he was on Ireland AM and I got a picture of him realising it was him on television and he was just oh, beaming. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Absolutely beaming. They made, it, they made it now for him. They really finished off yesterday to a tee. When he hears this later now, he'll be absolutely chuffed. Oh. You have no idea. He's very, very able-minded and, and it's standing to him. You know, it's giving him huge determination. I think I think his bravery and his tenacity and his courage uh, and his drive and energy should be recognised by a special spot on the toy show. But I've nothing to do with that. Uh, let's oh, well, we, hope we the powers that be here. <laughs> he actually got COVID last week, Mick. Oh, and no. He, the week before, yeah. So he made it back to school on Tuesday and that was another huge achievement for him because COVID really frightened him. Um, I suppose for all of us, we were just afraid. Um, but he, he took it <laughs> by storm and, and got through it and... You know, I've had the COVID, I'm good now, aren't I? Is what he said. Oh, brilliant. That sounds um, like a great attitude, so isn't it? Ryan Tubbley, absolutely. Adam King and uh, so many others before him. My God, yeah. Look, exactly. Let's get another there. Adam on it. Uh, anyway, I, I've been exposed to the great work that Enable Ireland does back in the day and, and they still continue to do it. Let's give them a shameless plug, shall we? Oh, my God. Well, you couldn't be talking to a more appreciative family. We are absolutely in awe of them. Um, it's not easy what they do. It's not easy what they accomplish. But Adam is what he is from day one in CUMH. And, and early intervention just kept being repeated to us. Adam needs early intervention for any quality of anything. Never mind getting up on a walker, Mick. You know, it, it just quality of life. A life, first of all and foremost. You know, when you're told go home and take lots of videos and pictures, you know yourself. Mm-hmm. You just keep talking to him, don't you? And Absolutely. bring him on, and, and that's what they did too, and they see his potential. They've worked with everything. You know, this marathon is because Darrow came, took his picture for a photo shoot in Enable Ireland, and Adam said, where's the walk? Where's my marathon? And poor Darrow was looking at him going, like, it's not here today, Adam, you know? And Adam said, okay, man, when are we doing it? Wow. And that's it. That's it. We're here finishing a marathon for Enable Ireland, and Adam wants to help he couldn't understand, obviously, the conception of people do this, Adam, you want to fundraise. Yeah, I know, and, and the said, fundraising has been it? enormous. So congratulations yeah? to Adam and his Nusistown junior <laughs> infant uh, classmates. Uh, Absolutely. Over 11,000 euros. 11,000. Yeah, over 11,000 so far. Um, he's going to cross the line in Kinsale Regatta to complete the whole lot on the 29th of July with his uncle um, for the five-mile run, and that will be Adam's marathon fully complete. He's just going to support him who's oh, doing brilliant. it for Enable Ireland also. Well done. We're very, very grateful to everyone he's met. Well, I hope he hears this uh, me chatting to his mom and, and that we can relate to him how absolutely proud everybody he is will. And when Adam you see Clark. him on his walker and are driving by, give him a shout out. He, All right. He's a very traffic lad. Therese, thanks a million for coming on this thanks morning and well done to Adam. Thanks to everyone for supporting his walk. Thanks a million. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. 0818 104 106. I'm going to bring a first cousin of mine. She's a huge fan of Vincent as well, so the two of us can go together. 
All right. So enjoy it and uh, make sure you get there on time and you'll have all the fun of the fair. Elton's last uh, show, his last tour coming to Cork on Friday night, the Parky Keeve. Dennis from Dylan's Cross, congrats. You're a winner today. More tomorrow. On the ball, Nick. Thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers. On the ball. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Six minutes to 12 midday. I want to say a big happy 60th birthday for today to Dad Neil O'Connor from Kilcully and his wife Carol, his daughters Elaine, Gemma and Laura and his three grandsons, Jake, Harry and Rory. Uh, we hope he has an amazing day as he deserves it. Now it's a red letter day and we didn't want to let the programme slip by without mentioning today marks the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. It lasted almost a year. It cost 2,000 lives. It devastated this country. And the cost of the physical destruction has been put in 1922 values at 50 million pounds. Poons, or whatever they were called at that time. Pounds, I suppose. Gabriel Doherty is a lecturer at UCC History School. Good morning, Gabriel. Good morning. Now, a hundred years on, have we forgotten the impact and the import of this civil war and how it created the country we have today? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that the, the memory of the Civil War has probably been slightly overshadowed by, I suppose, <laughs> the more popular memory, the more widespread memory of the, the War of Independence, especially here in Cork. But uh, I don't think the, the, the memory of the Civil War has ever been or could ever be uh, erased, both in terms, as you said, of the, the physical destruction, the loss of lives, and perhaps the... the the imprint it left on on the national psyche coming so soon after, as it were, what was widely interpreted as as, as sort of a a win in the War of Independence, the extent to which the the British were withdrawing from Ireland. Uh, For those who participated in that struggle to to fall out so spectacularly and and engage in internecine conflict was came as a a huge shock at the time and remains so to the present day. Yeah, so, so 100 years and six months ago, the leaders of the Irish War of Independence signed a treaty with Britain that ended the war and offered limited independence inside, however, the British Commonwealth. There would be no Irish Republic and the new entity would be known as the Irish Free State. The other caveat there was all members of the new Irish Parliament, the Doyle, would have to swear an oath of allegiance to the British Crown. Yes, and uh, of course those were issues at the very heart of the Civil War. I personally uh, would would draw a distinction between the treaty split, which certainly defined the the two sides in the civil civil war, and was as it were a domestic issue, and the series of events that led to the outbreak of the civil war, uh, where I think the situation is more complicated. The in a nutshell, uh, well, more complicated Michael because Collins, it meant it confirmed the partition yeah. of this island. Not so much that, although, uh, actually, (laughs) and this is uh, an an aspect of the treaty that is almost completely misunderstood, the treaty provided for, in the first instance, for the Irish Free State to to encompass all 32 counties, albeit it gave the Northern Ireland Parliament the right to vote itself out, which, of course, was highly likely, and that's what actually happened. But the real complication about the actual series of events that led to the outbreak of the war uh, is much more to do with, as it were, British pressure being put on... Michael Collins um, to deal with the Four Courts garrison in, in Dublin, um, and this in turn led back to the British misreaction, as it were, the, the, the misunderstood reaction of the British to the assassination of Henry Wilson, which had occurred a few days before. The British blamed the Four Courts garrison, the anti-treaty forces uh, for that assassination. Uh, 
in, in practice, the forecourt garrison had nothing whatsoever to do with the assassination of Wilson, but it was a pretext by which the British government could put sure. pressure on Collins to, in effect, hold up his side of the bargain that had been signed yeah. six months before. So that that involvement of the British government, uh, even though, of course, it, it it doesn't become directly involved in the civil war and it is purely a domestic issue, I think really should not be neglected when we're looking at the, the actual outbreak itself 100 years on. Yeah, I, I think Colin saw it gave Ireland not the ultimate freedom all nations desire, his words, but the freedom to achieve it at some stage. So on two sides, you have the, provision, you have the provisional government supporting the treaty and then the anti-treaty IRA, which saw it essentially as a betrayal of the Irish Republic. Yeah, I mean, in effect, the two sides adopt different emphases. The, the pro-treaty government says it gives us, as it were, the, the famous phrase, an independent Irish Republic. The pro-treaty side that, in effect, it gives us independence. The anti-treaty side said that we need the Republic. Uh, and they are, I suppose, thinking back to the, the important inspiration that was drawn by all the Republicans from the 1916 Rising, that distinction between independence which in effect Dominion State has suffered, ah. um, and a Republican form of government, which of course was what was laid down in 1916, therein laid the, the difference. So a hundred years ago today, uh, inside the four courts, uh, the anti-treaty IRA men inside, given almost no time at all to consider demands before the Free State Army opened fire with borrowed British artillery just after four o'clock in the morning yep. on this day, 1922. And, and, and I think the important point to note there is that the British made it clear to Collins that if he didn't undertake the attack, they would. And that, that re-engagement of the British army, which had been evacuating uh, the country, including Cork, over the, pre- the intervening six months, was the crucial factor. Collins felt that, that the one thing he could not allow was for the British army to re-engage in Ireland. So, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, he felt that he had no choice but to, to accede to that demand. Yes, that was sad. And can, uh, quick question, Cork back in 21, our awareness here, I've very little time left. Did it cause civil unrest in Cork? Not immediately, no, primarily because the anti-treaty forces were in control uh, of the city within the space of about sort of five weeks. Of course, you have an attack, a maritime attack, initially landing in passage, and then a full-scale battle along the Town douglas Road uh, that ultimately led to the, the takeover of the city by uh, the anti-treaty forces and ultimately the visit of Michael Collins to Cork that led to his death. That led to his death. Gabriel Dart, you're going to have to leave it there. We could talk for ages about it, but it's important to mark it 100 years ago today, the start of the Irish Civil War. The programme produced today by Seamus Wheelahan, Kevin Galvin and Claire O'Connor. And my thanks to them. Neil Prendeville, the voice of Cork. Weekdays 9 to 12, Cork's Red FM.